You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Beyond description. Who are you? My name is Mike Hammer, matters. What do you want? He was out to get men who tortured women and killed with the ferocity of wild beasts. This was their jungle. Cut the knife! Deadly stars Ralph Meeker, winner of the New York Critics Award. Through his great talent, the vivid character of Mike Hammer comes to life as never before. They came last night, right after you left. I heard them. I hid in the basement. Only a woman could help him solve the murderous riddle of Kiss Me Deadly. She's dead. But I'm not dead. Hey, remember me? This woman's lips, cold as steel, lethal as a gun, gave him the terrifying clue he sought. On this woman's lips, warm with longing, lay the shocking secret of Kiss Me Deadly. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Kevin Heffernan. Hey, Mike. It's great to be back with you. You know, you're what we call real woo bait. Also back with us this week is Mr. Andrew Netty. A pleasure to be back. Just don't open the box. This week we're discussing the 1955 film from Robert Aldrich based on the 1952 novel by Mickey Spillane, Kiss Me Deadly. The film stars Ralph Meeker as Mike Hammer, a hard-boiled gumshoe who gets dragged into a case involving a glowing case, duplicitous dames, and two-fisted violence. We're going to be getting into spoilers galore about this 60-some-year-old film, so if you haven't caught up with it yet, turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen it. We will still be here. Now, Andrew, when was the first time you saw Kiss Me Deadly, and what did you think, sir? I would have seen it, um, I reckon, back in the 90s when I was just starting to develop an interest in film noir. I was enormously impressed with it. I'm not even sure I can quite describe back why I was so impressed with it back then because it was so unlike so many other film noirs that I had seen. I love the theme it had about the nuclear state and the Cold War and everything that came from that. As have countless so many other people, I was absolutely blown away. I was captured, entranced by the first 10 minutes. The scene where he um, he picks up the woman on the side of the road and, and the banter and then that amazing scene with the, uh, with, with the torture scene, which is shown purely through legs. I was, I was, I was very impressed and um, I have re- revisited the film many times since and uh, my, my appreciation for it 
as both an excellent noir and also a fascinating cultural and pop culture artifact has just grown. How about you, Kevin? I first saw the film in grad school, my first semester in grad school, in a film noir seminar. And uh, this was back, and I'm sure we'll talk about the variant versions. Uh, this was uh, back when it had the, the shortened uh, ending. And I thought it was one of the most radical and revolutionary and brilliant things I'd ever seen, especially when we look at Orson Welles' Touch of Evil a couple of years later that, that was praised for many things that I think this film has more of and does better. So it was one of the great movie-watching experiences of my life, along with a better tomorrow and the Godfather. I mean, it's, it's in the real pantheon of movies that made me the kind of movie person that I am. I couldn't say enough things about the importance that it's played in my life as a person who loves movies. I probably saw this one early nineties when I was going through a real noir phase when I was going, uh, when I was in film school and this one stood out, you know, we all know that, a lot of noir was notoriously cheap, and this movie is kind of cheap in a lot of ways. Um, there's some great uh, off-screen stuff that happens. Um, we'll talk about that. Um, we're, we're hearing characters talk about things that they're seeing rather than actually seeing the action. And it's just like, was that a way to get around actually paying for three actors instead <laughs> or choreographing some of this other stuff? Um a lot of great use of sound in this, a lot of uh, great use of just uh, body parts to represent people. I mean, we start with this amazing shot of these you know, legs running down the, the road, and we have no idea what's going on, and it just immediately grabs us. And from that, that opening that you talked about, the way that the credits start to roll, roll backwards down the screen from top to bottom instead of bottom to top, and that just signals to me like I'm in for something completely different, something I haven't seen before. And then even just, you know, talking about the use of sound, the way that as the credits are going and the music is blaring, we get this painting still that uh, we had heard from Cloris Leachman, a very young Cloris Leachman, who flags down Mike Hammer's car, not knowing that it's Mike Hammer, but needs someone to stop because she's naked in a trench coat on a road. And, that she's there painting, it's uh, you could almost mistake that sound for lovemaking instead of pure panic. And it kind of plays with that uh, throughout the rest of the movie. We don't necessarily know what's happening through so much of this. Not only are we in the detective role as we follow Mike Hammer through it, but we're just like, what the hell am I actually watching? Well, the characters are often introduced uh, sonically before we see them. I mean, and once again, talk about Touch of Evil, you know, that's a film in which virtually every important narrative event occurs off screen and in some cases we know that a character is there as much as a minute before we see them uh there are parts of this that almost unspool like like a radio program that you could almost eliminate the images in terms of what the narrative information is being conveyed almost exclusively through the soundtrack and of course this frees up uh ernest laszlo the cinematographer and aldrich to just paint the screen with these crazy funhouse expressionist images because the narrative is being carried by the sound effects and the dialogue. It's a really uh, remarkable way of conveying the mood of telling the story and having this very, very stylized expressionist hellscape 
and as you pointed out, Mike, not having to pay for a whole lot. Obviously, we'll talk about the fact that uh, you know it's based on a Mickey Spillane pulp novel. Um, Spillane just, uh, you know, I suppose, is seen as old-fashioned these days, um, but you know, a stratospherically successful pulp writer um, whose books were banned, like his films, certainly all banned in Australia in the 1950s, as were all his films. And I think I know that there's there was a lot of um, there was a lot of banning of his films going on elsewhere. I, I think this this movie, it's you know, why why was pulp so successful? Pulp was so successful because it offered this like keyhole view of so many things that were going on in in Anglo American culture in the late forties and the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties. And this film, to me, it's just a it's a perfect screen embodiment of a pulp novel of, of a lot of and the themes that are running through so much of pulp you know the cold war paranoia the intense sexualization of anglo-american culture that's gone on as a result of world war ii and the pushback against that it's you know it's it's, it's that whole theme about hammer as this sort of hard charging in a sense homicidal pi but also this incredibly fragile example of male masculinity who um you know is is alienated from what's going on as much as he sort of revels in it and the women in this film the women are classic all terrific examples of sort of um you know emancipated post-world war ii women in their each in their own way which which hammer both loves and is kind of terrified by i just really think as i say this is just the perfect embodiment of so many themes running through pulp fiction, it's 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 quite astounding. Well, the pulp universe is comprised of everything that post-war middle-class bourgeois norms are trying to ignore: the groups of people, the social space, the social spaces that that Hammer negotiates, uh, and and of course, as we move into the later um, uh, sort of uh, suburban crime pulps of the 1960s. Uh, this idea that that this festering underworld extends into the suburbs, but it's all taking place behind closed doors. We don't get to see it. There are these nicely manicured laws, and there's all this adultery and depravity and alcoholism and drug abuse going on, sort of behind you know behind the scenes. And Kiss Me Deadly is one of these perfect films that just sets itself a hundred percent in every social space. Every psychic space, every space of, of violence and troubled sexuality that nobody is trying to look at. Everyone is trying to look away. And the movie is just set completely there in exactly the way that the pulp novels of the era uh, were doing uh, as well in terms of their setting and their plots and their themes and their characters. It's a wonderfully less is more film, a wonderfully less is more take on so many of those things that are going on. I mean, this. I, I must have rewatched. I must have watched "Kiss Me Deadly" about a dozen times, and every time I watch it, I find something new in it. I find some new suggestion. I find some new small detail that's been admitted. Just the relationship between um, Hammer and um, Velda, his PA, who he, he he sort of, you know, he's a PI. He's also a sort of pimp. That's that's handled amazingly. That yes. sort of innuendo around all of that. Christina, the woman he picks up. Why is she in a mental institution? You know, we, we never we never really find this out. There's so much going on, and it, it, it speaks to all these themes. It's really quite wonderful. Well, there's a post-war American terror of of the institution of psychiatry and 
mental institutions and, and this idea that someone like Dr. Soberin would have the power just to fill out a couple of forms and have uh, an unmarried, single, uh, strongly implied bisexual woman like Christina just sort of taken in off the street, put in the hospital and just kept there as long as he wants her there and that his authority in that matter is completely unassailable. We see that figure of the the evil psychiatrist in dozens and dozens of uh, films in the 50s. My favorite is Invasion of the Body Snatchers where they're, they're, everyone's been taken over except for Miles and Becky and the psychiatrist, the, the town psychiatrist comes in and gives this very quiet, persuasive speech to Miles about how it would just be better if he just kind of gave over. You've been in love before. It didn't last. It never does. Love, desire, ambition, faith. Without them, life's so simple. Believe me. You know, the figure of Dr. Sobrin really doesn't need to be on screen that much. He's almost like, you know, Blofeld in the Bond films, that he has this he has this omniscience through the, these people that he sends out everywhere, and, and he has the money and the authority to get whatever he wants done at two or three people's remove. And, and I, I, I find that sort of, you know, the beholder share where we sort of fill in with our imagination stuff that we don't see. You could just imagine how horrific it was in that mental institution, what they were doing oh. to her, with all the paperwork filled out. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that Dr. Soberin also gets all the best lines. I was, when I watched it most recently, I was just thinking, oh, God, it would have been really good if there'd been a, a spin-off PI series with Dr. Soberin, basically told through his legs, and he just gets to spin off on all these terrific sort of dialogue lines, utilising his knowledge of classical literature, and, you know, it would have been fantastic. Maybe there were leftover lines from Dr. Cyclops because he's the evil doctor in that and he's always lecturing these little people on his his knowledge of philosophy and mythology. Yeah, I like that we have him even explaining what resurrection is at the very beginning uh, when we move from the screaming that's going on because the, of a car crash that is initiated, Mike crashes his car cut to the screaming still continuing and then uh christina's legs shuddering and kicking and then it's great because even when they aren't moving anymore she's still screaming which is probably more of an error but it's pretty great because you see those dead legs now in the back and then she cuts out almost immediately and then we have the evildoers legs and we're going to get those a lot through this and that's the only thing that mike has to work off of for so much of this is because he's the first time of two times that he's tied to this bed and looks down and sees dr soberin who we learn is dr soberin later on much later on sees his shoes and that's the only clue he has to go on as to who this guy is so even when he visits a pool house later on and all these guys have taken off their shoes to go swimming he's there checking out their shoes to see is is that guy here because i only know his shoes and maybe his voice and the second time he's uh, tied to that bed he's uh, tied uh, face down and someone is coming up behind him with a pointed phallic object, and at that point he's sort of looking at the uh, looking at the floor. One of the most remarkable things to me about the film, people talk about you know Hammer as a sadistic character, you know, and we can look at the ways that he appears to relish the infliction of physical pain. But it's also a tremendously masochistic film that Hammer and most of the other characters. Uh, we really zoom in on their 
physical and psychological terror. There, almost every scene in the film, there's a person who is in some kind of mortal physical or emotional agony. It's it's really a cruel film in in that regard, I think. And uh, and Hammer, you know, he gets as he gets as good as he gives over the course of the film. Linked to that, that like, I still remember that that terrific scene with Jackie. You know, those two wonderful. It's also got a wonderful cast of supporting characters, and Jack Lambert and Jack Elam as those two good. You know, the two sort of the two cannons. That amazing scene where uh, they they basically front Hammer in the in the uh, the changing room next to the pool, and you know, you don't even see what Hammer does to Jack Lambert. He just drops, and, and Jack Elam's eyes are just wide with this. I've never seen you know terror as he backs out of the of the pool cabin. Terrific. In the way that I remember Mike Hammer, like I, I read uh, I, the Jury, 91 or something, and just that that rawness of his character, and he was so far removed, in my mind anyway, as far as the gentleman detective. You know, He was no Sam Spade. He was no Philip Marlowe. He was more like a force of nature. He kind of reminded me more of like a Parker-type character, where Parker, a lot of ways, to me, is almost like a golem who's just like moving through this space, at least in point blank. He's moving through space. He just wants his money. He's kind of set on this task, and that's kind of like Hammer in this. But then you think that he's all violence and all bluster, but what's he doing? He's When he goes to Christina's place, he turns on the radio and there's a classical station. It's the same station that's on in his apartment later on. He manages to figure out the the one little clue, remember me, by tying it into a poem. You know, it's just like he is definitely a, uh, what's that, uh, Chris Christopherson line? He's, he's a walking contradiction. He's a prophet. He's a prophet and a pusher. Partly truth, partly fiction. Walking contradiction. You're saying that about me? Well, who else would I be talking about? I'm no pusher. I never have pushed. No, no, just the part about the contradictions. You are that. He can use his hands to break uh, an opera album, but then he seems to also appreciate the opera that the man is listening to. Well, that makes it even more evil, doesn't it? He's sensitive and aware enough to have this insight into the world and into the people around him. And and he uses his knowledge of technology, you know, with the hidden tape recorders and all those cameras that we see when he walks into his uh, into his apartment. He has an answering machine, which, of course, you know, gives him this sort of omniscience and, you know, by the standards of the day. And so so he could actually be someone who is doing something to treat the people around him with compassion or better the lives of the people around him. And, and as smart and experienced and cultured and sensitive as he is, as he is, he's using it all in this brutal, self-serving way. Is there any indication in his backstory that he served in either uh, the, the Asian theater world war ii or korea is there anything about him being a veteran look i seem to remember i actually read kiss me deadly the novel of kiss me deadly for the um for this podcast and i actually thought it was i thought it was basic but uh spillane's prose is terrific i mean he's really a very good good writer in that and i read eye of a jury years ago and i i re-watched the eye of a jury um film 
And he, he, there is the. I, I seem to remember there's very strong. He, he's a veteran because I know I the jury is about him basically avenging the death of one of the one of the men that he fought with in World War Two. But I can't okay. remember okay. Um, where he was based. The reason um, that I ask is is that provides a possible backstory for his martial arts skills. I don't even ascribe that level of, in some respects, subjectivity to Hammer. I mean, I think that he is just a, he's a walking embodiment of kind of this masculine id in America in the late 40s and and early 1950s. I mean, there's a terrific line in the film, Pat Murphy, that sort of his policeman buddy who kind of loathes him as much as he sort of likes him, it seems, and then, you know, the very end when they're sort of described, when Murphy's hitting, you know, Los Alamos, Manhattan Project, and Mike Hammer just says, I didn't know. And Pat Murphy says, you didn't know. Do you think you would have done any different if you had? And Hammer is just kind of speechless. I don't think he even has that degree of um, of self-awareness, and that's what makes him such an amazing force uh, throughout at the novel's and through the and through this particular film, I also want to talk about Hammer in this movie. As far as he's the hero to the forgotten man, one of his best friends in this movie is this Greek immigrant, Nikki Vavavoum, right? And he gets along with him very, very well. Manages to save his life because Nikki almost starts up a car that has not one but two bombs in it. He also is very friendly with this Italian immigrant who uh, has moved Christine uh, and uh, talks with him. And then he's also friendly with this African-American gentleman who runs this boxing place. So it's just like all of these people and they seem to genuinely like him as well. It's not a matter of him coming in and roughing up these guys at all. He gets along with them very well. If anything, he tends to treat other white men much more rude and much more brusque. He doesn't seem to give that kind of shit to uh, minorities. I mean, even when he's there drinking himself to oblivion later on in the film, he's at a, a uh, apparently an African-American run joint, which is great. That apparently Nick went to also because the bartender remembers Nick. He is with and among the dispossessed. We could uh, uh, speculate on his on his motivation, uh, but but I think that that's clearly the case that he is a sort of working class antihero. And of course, you know, we can talk a lot about the way Aldrich and Zerides subverted or turned the character inside out for their own for their own purposes. But I I certainly think. That uh, that if we look back at at the Sam Spade novels, for example, you know the Dashiell Hammett novels, he was able to move among supposedly lower groups, but always with a sense of of detachment. And I, I agree that in this film, Hammer really does appear to have some sort of empathy and and reciprocal understanding with this with these groups of marginalized people. Certainly, I mean, there's lots of discussion about how much. Uh... Aldrich and Bezzarides changed the book for the film. And I think certainly when you look into it, the answer is obviously they, in, in the book, Kiss Me Deadly, the sort of the, uh, the, the, the crime revolves around mafia heroin and they, they couldn't, because of various, um, you know, censorship uh, things, they couldn't um, show that. And so they changed that and they changed other things. But I think they, they didn't change didn't change it quite as much as I think a lot of people think they did, but having read a couple of the the Mike the the Mickey Spillane books, that 
that ability to move freely and with a sort of egalitarian streak with all these other marginalised people in LA, that's very much, I think, Bezzarides and Aldrich. I don't, I don't, you don't find that in the books. Also, I think one of the major changes that this film made was the psychological depth and shading that it gave to the female characters that we, yes. we really don't see in the Spillane novels. Each of these four women all have extremely troubled backstories and extremely troubled relationships with the men around them and not just Mike Hammer, that each of them comes forward in at least one scene to dramatize their anger and their fear and their bewilderment of the, the roles into which they've been cast. And I don't, not only do I not see that in the one or two Spillane novels that I've read, I, I don't really see it in that many other of the Mike Hammer films. I think this film is truly distinctive in the way that it lets some of these female characters who would be portrayed elsewhere as femme fatales or sex objects or aider, helper, donor, sacrificial lamb figures. It allows them to step forward and speak in their own voice about what's happening to them at some particular point, giving us a certain amount of sympathy for them that we probably don't have for most of the male characters. If Hammer is the embodiment of that sort of dislocation felt by returned veterans, you know, their experience with the labour market and their alienation to how the country's changed while they've been at war, the women certainly are very much um, manifestations of, of the emancipation and the freedom that, you know, a lot of women had during World War II while, while, while the men were away fighting, you know. I mean, each in their own way, uh, Christina, Velda and Lily Carver, are all feel like quite modern characters, and they I mean they're quite existentially traumatized too, but that's noir. But they they feel very modern, and they're all quite, to some degree, quite emancipated, and in other other degrees not. But you know, I think that's I, I agree with you. You see, that's a theme that runs through a lot of film noir, but I think it's really brought out in this film. Belma clearly cares for Mike, and she's clearly pained, even traumatized by his pimping her out to gain information either in these divorce cases or, uh, or, or in, in the attempts, I believe it's, a uh, to go see Ray Diker again, to get more information out of him. And, and she's either drunk or taking sleeping pills or something. And she's just sort of agonized in this, this, you know, mid wee hour, reverie talking to her and said do you want me to date him again mike do you want me to date him again and he says something like yeah give him some of that honey talk i'll tell you that tape was really nice oh which, yeah which is, is one of the most fucked up and like cruel things i've ever heard a male character say to a female character in a movie much less under the strictures of the production code that's just an outrageous moment when, when Hammer picks up Christina, again, we, we, I know this has been talked about a lot, that, that first five to ten minutes, when Hammer picks up Christina and she goes in a, in a matter of a couple of minutes from being hysterical, scared, to dissembling Mike Hammer's character. You know, she nails him. And that, that is a scene, I think, which oh, there's very few scenes I can, I can think of in film noir cinema where uh, a female character dissembles a male that quickly 
and that efficiently as as the kind of selfish narcissistic person that so many of these male PI characters in you know selfish etc are, are in film noir. Might that be production code ease for uh, here is a lesbian and we will make sure she is dispatched as soon as possible. There there seems to me to clearly have been some kind of uh, implication of a romantic uh, or sexual relationship uh, between uh, Christine and uh, uh, and Gabrielle earlier earlier on. And so so, you know, once again, uh, that character of Christine stands out as this, as you as you point out beautifully, Andrew, this this perfect post-war, angry, could have been emancipated woman that has discovered that she as she is just as subject to the whims of male authority and violence as as anyone else has ever been. And is and she I, not happy about it? Well, you talked about the way that hammer can move amongst these minorities and it's interesting to me to kind of a ham-fisted uh, segue but it's interesting to me that they move the story from new york to los angeles now that could be for financial reasons for budgetary reasons we don't want to shoot this you know on the back lot we want to shoot this on the actual streets of los angeles which they do and the, those locations become really important but it's always interesting to me to see the way that the city kind of reflects the detective you know like the we we do get you know uh spade and san francisco and here we usually have hammer in new york but now hammer in los angeles kind of gives him a different flavor to me a lot of the film is shot in the the bunker hill section of la which was one of the extras on the the blu-ray points on this lovely little documentary that was the uh, turn of the previous centuries place where wealthy folks and real estate magnates and business owners, you know, lived in these, in these palatial uh, Queen Anne looking mansions. And by the time we get to the end of the second world war, they've all been flatted out into apartments and they're falling into disrepair. And that bunker Hill section of LA essentially becomes <laughs> allied artists, art department in the 1940s and 50s, you know, with all of these uh, uh, low-budget crime films and stuff being uh, being shot there with all of the, the decay and the arches and the staircases and uh, and all this other stuff. There's a fantastic book that I discovered, uh, 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 Mike, thanks to your drawing our attention to the locations uh, with some of the media that you provided. Uh, it's a book by Jim Dawson called Los Angeles' Bunker Hill, Pulp Fiction's Mean Streets and Film Noir's Ground Zero. Uh, it's an ebook. It's available on on Amazon, and I have a list here of the of the noir classics that were shot within about a five block radius of where uh, a lot of uh, Kiss Me Deadly shots. So a remar- remarkable list. We have Asphalt Jungle from 1950, Crisscross, the great Burt Lancaster uh, noir, the Robert Siedmak uh, from 1949, uh, uh, Cry Danger 51, Kubrick's The Killing in 56. Uh, Joseph Losey's remake of M in 1951, uh, another Hammer uh, adaptation, uh, My Gun is Quick from 57, The Night Has a Thousand Eyes from 48, The Setup, that great uh, Robert Ryan boxing film, that's, that's shot there. My all-time favorite Bunker Hill uh, 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 movie, The Sniper from 1952, the Columbia movie about the, the misogynist uh, uh, Korean War sniper. Sudden Fear, uh, starring Joan Crawford in 52, and Fritz Lang's While the City Sleeps, in 56, 
Uh, and I took notes. Uh, uh, and, and the non-noir great, indestructible man, Lon Chaney in 56, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies in 64, and Little Shop of Horrors from 1960. We could almost see that by 1955, when when Aldrich is and his folks are scouting you know, locations for the film, the Bunker Hill section of L.A. is almost a thriller subgenre all on its own. The way those spaces are used in film, it pre-exists any idea they might have had about the, you know, about what the movie is going to be. And that if you were going to be looking for some sort of analog to the claustrophobic, geometrically enclosed hellscape of, of, of you know Manhattan tenements and dark alleys and bridges and alleys and things like that, it would probably be Bunker Hill. And uh, in particular, uh, the movie Crisscross is a is a wonderful sort of evocation of that. And so when they imagined what kind of modern dystopia that my camera would be walking through, if it wasn't going to be, uh, if it wasn't going to be New York, it was going to be Bunker Hill. Uh, Ten years later, you know, they would put Dirty Harry in uh, uh, in the Mission and Fillmore districts in San Francisco, for example. And that, that became a sort of uh, modern homologue of that. Uh, also, uh, the uh, was it the Jalisco Hotel that was in Chinatown, uh, which is where uh, uh, Christina's Flop House, where that is. That was that was another famous sort of broken down mansion that had been uh, uh, honey honeycombed into these little crappy little one bedroom apartments. Uh, and I think it works really, really beautifully, especially when we learn that my camera is living uh, in the very nice uh, other part of town. You know, that he's not of that world. You know, you think about all those scenes where Robert Ryan and Humphrey Bogart and stuff, they go back to their apartment. And it's kind of dingy and, you know, all that all that stuff. And, and and he's got all the modern accoutrements, including those little Alberto Giacometti like you know, sculptures on his uh, on his armoire. Yeah. And again, that amazing uh, answering machine, which is. 1955 this is coming out and i know even in the 70s answering machines were they were one of many things that uh would put uh colombo just in awe of modern technology so that the answering machine even tells him you receive no calls while you're out that that's pretty amazing it's a disembodied female voice the film because kiss me's deadly was marketed as the thriller of tomorrow and obviously there's the there's the whole nuclear subtext, but things like that answering machine must have seemed so new in 1955. Bozerides in interviews, you know, shortly before his death, you know, they asked that everybody wanted to talk about Kiss Me Deadly. And he would always they would ask him questions, but he would answer me and said, but I always really liked that answering machine. I thought that was a cool thing. I was proud that I had that in there. You know, you were talking about how you can get new stuff out of this movie every time you watch it. And that's really the way when I watch it, even again, right before recording this podcast, it's like the way that we have, sorry, Gabby Rogers is the actress's name, but uh, uh, she goes by what? Two different things. Gabrielle is one of them. And then Lily is the other. And that she is um, called Pandora. 
And then we have such a major Greek character. And I was just like, is that kind of a thing about Greek uh, uh, mythos here? And then uh, there's all of this stuff about resurrection that we hear from uh, Dr. Soberin. And then we have uh, Nikki the Greek and Nikki Vavavoom calling Mike Hammer Lazarus uh, coming back from the grave after three days, which was also Jesus's thing. Um, and so it's just all of these amazing little nods to classics and uh, you know our, our history throughout this entire movie. And I'm sure that if I knew more about even classical music, I wouldn't be surprised if the classical music plays even more of a kind of a, 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 um, a commentary role on what's happening inside of uh, the film. I, I, if I knew more about opera, I might understand a little bit more. You know, I know Christina's got her, uh, uh, her book on opera there. So it's just like, Oh wow. So there's all of these things that if I was a smarter man, I may not be a smart man, Jenny, but I'd make a good husband. If I was a smarter man, I might (laughs) understand a little bit more of this film because every time I scratch a little bit harder, I get more out of this one. Bezzarides wrote this the script for this film in a very similar way that uh, Spillane wrote his novels, which is he just sat down and just ripped through it. And that's that's got to sort of bring out all kinds of stream of consciousness, sort of unconscious connections and, and things that you're ripping on that, as you say, are sort of coming, coming into this um, film and are showing up as as themes in it, um, which I think is one of the fascinating things about actually Hammer's work and and also the screenplay for this film. Um, you know, they, what was it that, that one of the things you sent us, Mike, was talking about the fact that there was an interview with Ham with um, Spillane from a men's pop magazine when it was basically saying, um, you know, he does every single writer double spaces their work, but. Spillane is writing so fast he doesn't want to have to, you know, if he can single space his work, it means he has to change the paper less often. That's how fast he's going. So he's mining, and and as a result of that, he's mining a deep stream of consciousness, which I think also this film replicates. You've pointed out the the classical illusions in a lot of this. Are there deeper, deeper, more meaningful things in it? Or is it just that Bezzarides is going bang, 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 bang? I mean, the way the Greek mechanic, he speaks like a pulp novel. Uh, you know, he's he's, a, he's like a beat, it's almost like a beat hipster, pre, pre-beat hipster, you know, it's, um, but all of that, it's, it's all so pulpy. You know, we talked a little bit about sound and how sound is so important, sound effects and all these things. And, and you talked about the woman's voice on the answer machine, which is kind of a character unto itself. I love that we get the voiceover from Velda at one point, who's kind of putting the pieces together from Mike. And it's not just one of these, like, we're going to take the dialogue that was earlier in the movie and just replay it later on when Mike is thinking of it, that it's actually the actress saying the line and giving it three different inflections. She's not even just, like, reading it. She's just, she's telling him, like... Just happened to pick him up. He dropped a few names. Does that make your ears stand up? Want to hear them? Dr. Sobrin. Does that do anything for you? Dr. Sobrin, does that do anything for you? Dr. Sobrin, does that do anything for you? 
Come on, pay attention. This is what I'm trying to tell you from wherever I'm at right now, giving it all she's got. And we have sound coming back in other ways, like the uh, the sound of the race, tr- uh, the, the the horse race, when we have all of these degenerate gamblers hanging out by the pool, all of these these uh, guns for hire by Dr. Sobrin hanging out by the pool, and we hear the horse race going on. And then we get that great scene that I was talking about before of Mike and the boxing manager looking at this boxer who we never see. And then we still don't see him later on when he's fighting, but we hear the fight and we hear the the voice on the radio telling us everything that's happening on this fight as Mike is being pumped full of sodium pentothal and is there mumbling and, and he's not giving us anything, but the radio's giving us stuff. And that radio, we heard that at the very beginning of the film, it comes in as almost a character when Christine is getting into the car and we have the radio announcer announcing this new song by Nat King Cole. So it's just amazing how much stuff is going on in this film by these, these, characters quote-unquote that aren't even part of it that they're these kind of voice of god type characters well they feather in and out of each other and and develop and elaborate motifs and and even flesh out some of the subplots that it seems clear to me that the horse race that they're listening to has been fixed and it's clear that when um uh when when hammer says to uh to the trainer you know you're going to sell them out like everybody else and you you hear the fight on the radio, and that's exactly what's happening. Uh, he's being sold out. And I think that Velma's speech about the the nameless ones, and because not only does she does she reiterate the plot, you know, the the mystery hermeneutic plot at that point, she gives a philosophical gloss on it as well. As well, and at that point, of course, she replays Christina's dressing down of Mike from earlier in the film. So we have this we have this second female character who sees through him who sees more than he can see, you know, both about himself and about everything that goes around. And, and as you say, that doesn't cost a lot of money to, you know, to put something like that in there, but it, the depth and richness that it gives both to the narrative in our sense that, that this, this world of crime and corruption, it, 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 it reaches everywhere. There's, there's really no place where it doesn't go. If you, if you just listen and know enough, you can see that they're behind the scenes kind of fixing everything everywhere. And in a film in which a huge amount of the, the, the narrative is conveyed by the soundtrack, that gives us all of this room to, to just paint these crazy pictures. I, I don't think any of the beds in this movie have mattresses on them. They're like, it's like a Russ Meyer movie, right? You know, you, you put the light on top and then you just see these weird springs and, and, and latches and stuff, you know, uh, uh, on the floor. Uh, and you know, all the, the shots with the, with the staircases and the, uh, and the people coming in that one wonderful scene where Belda is doing the uh, ballet stuff. And, and it looks like it's a shot of her and that scene goes halfway through. And then we turn and we see that the whole scene has been shot through a mirror, um, uh, you know, because we have this incredibly dense, incredibly layered soundtrack that's doing so much of the basic work of the movie, the sort of expressionist visual stylings can really kind of go haywire. You know, once again, and Andre Bazan pointed this out in his, in his little book on Orson Welles, he had just this one little, like, throwaway line where it said, Touch of Evil is this remarkable 
singular work that shows that Wells is still at the top of his game late in his career. And then in just a couple of sentences, he says, and of course, much of this was done three years earlier by Robert Aldrich in, in his adaptation of, of Kiss Me Deadly. And he mentions things like the car, instead of using rear projection, it has the camera bolted to, to the hood of the car. Uh, he talks about the use of these long, deep takes down uh, you know, down long hallways and the particularly the, the chase between the guy with the knife and hammer on the street that it's done in deep space rather than through cross-cutting. And it's, once again, it's just these two or three little lines, and he points out that all the stuff that, that critics were aflame about Wells doing in 1958 that Aldrich and Laszlo had done in some cases better and in a more understated way in Kiss Me Deadly. It carries the sort of both unconscious and conscious sort of um, critical biases against um, it's worth thinking back about Hammer. I mean, as I say, an author that um, was banned in many countries, his films were reviled, the films were reviled, and actually with the exception of this one and, and maybe either jury, they're not particularly great films, but um, – and, and certainly to begin with, I mean, I think well, didn't didn't Aldrich did make quite a big fuss about the fact, well, and, and Bezzaretti's also made a fuss about the fact, well, we hated this book, we hated the politics, we hated um, we hated Mike Hammer, we hated his anti-communism, we hated hated his, his his whole attitude to life, and we sort of wanted to make a sort of um, a repudiation of that, but they actually really didn't. They just brought out those themes and just sort of melded them and sort of, but they're still all very much much there. It's just taken the culture a while to, to catch up with how good this is. I just wanted to touch on something you said earlier, Mike, with the tape recorder and that whole notion of this being a sort of, um, you know, a thriller of tomorrow. I think the other thing that's really interesting in this film, which, which, come, which certainly came out to me with successive viewings, just how it is absolutely drenched with surveillance and paranoia. Paranoia is a theme that plays out through film noir. I mean, it's a, it's a classic film noir trope. But I think this film does it so well that, that, that the tape is one thing. I mean, I, I started listening to the tape. It's almost like this sort of disembodied female Hal before Hal from 2001. This is Crestview, 54124. Mr. Hammer, whom you are calling, is not available at present. If you wish to leave a record of your call, please state your message at the sound of the tone. Everyone is following everyone in this film. There's all, there's all this surveillance going on. I mean, I love that scene where he's pulled him at, after he gets, so he's had the accident. He's gone at the very beginning of the film. Hammer's had the accident. He's in hospital. He's released. He's immediately picked up by, we're not really sure who they are. I mean, presumably they're the FBI who want to talk to him there's his police friend who knows the case is bigger than he's letting on, but we don't really know what's going on. People are following Hammer all the time. There's Soberin. What's his role in all of this? Is he a spy? Is he some sort of rogue member of the American military establishment, something that might have seemed strange in 1950 now, but now in 1955, but now has feels quite sort of like quite commonplace, that idea. Everything's paranoid and everyone's watching everyone. Oh, absolutely. When he goes to see Diker, he says, make it sound good that he he can he knows that someone is listening to him. He doesn't know when, but he knows that if he talks to Hammer, it has to sound like it's being coerced, that he's always everyone is always aware that someone is listening. 
And Mike's even recording his phone conversations. Like I'm doing right now. That inquest is amazing, where they are asking questions, one guy's asking questions, and the other guy's answering. The only time that Mike speaks is at the very beginning, and then at the very end, when he's just like, okay, yeah, I'm a real stinker. Michael Hammer, 10401 Wilshire Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. Now, just what do you do for a living? According to our information, he calls himself a private investigator. His specialty is divorce cases. He's a bedroom dick. He gets information against the wife. Then he makes a deal with the wife to get evidence against the husband. Thus, playing both hands against the middle. Just how do you achieve all this? You crawl under beds? Nothing so primitive. He has a secretary. At least that's what he calls her. What's her name, Mr. Hammer? Velda Whitman. She's a very attractive young woman. Real woobait. Lives like a princess. He sicks her onto the husbands, and before you know it, he's got his evidence, and he's ready for the big squeeze. Who do you sick onto the wives, Mr. Hammer? That's his department. All right, you've got me convinced. I'm a real stinker. You guys know everything, so why are you even doing this? I mean, of course, it's a great informational dump, but it's also a great way to say, we know everything about you, Mike Hammer. So as you're saying, as far as the surveillance goes, we already have the book of Mike Hammer, and this is what you're doing. You are a divorce attorney. You set up your secretary as this piece of tail for these guys to go after, and then you get the goods, and you shake them down, and then you shake down the, the person that hired you. You're not a good person at all. And that's a great way to tell us that about him, but also a great way to show that these guys think that they know everything about Mike Hammer. And then the rest of the film is such a a surprise for us. Also, something very important to note when it comes to surveillance is talking about that uh, Italian-American guy that when he tells Mike where he moved uh, Christina's roommate to, we are the only people that are there with Mike and this Italian guy, as far as we, the audience. But yet he leans over and whispers it to Mike Hammer so that we don't hear it. People are listening. We're listening. We are the voyeurs at that point. I do have to say, we were talking about the the, the Baroque nature of the visuals of this film. I keep harping on the audio, but my God... The, the crazy canted angles when we are in Mike's uh, hospital room, there's an angle where it, he is almost, it looks like he's almost standing up. It is so canted. You know, it, 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 he's, he's almost perpendicular on screen because the angle is such that he's, he's in a bed, but yet it's, it's facing him almost uh, straight up and down in the angle uh, of the shot. And those, all of those angles in there, when we see Velda and the nurse and when we have uh, the doctor coming in, that's just one of many, many great shots. So many, um, you know, I talked about the, uh, the, the shots of the feet and everything, but then even later on when we have Sobrin, there's a, a wonderful moment where we change from just pretty much a straight shot, reverse shot, to dipping down underneath him when he gets shot in the belly or shot in the chest that is just really takes you by surprise. And it's such a nice way to, again, utilize the camera to tell us the story that way as well, just with the use of the angles. For my money, that scene in the Velisco Hotel in uh, Gabrielle's sort of flop house, that's the craziest scene in the film in terms of, uh, there's a scene where we're looking down into the lobby and we see 
the slow encroaching of the broken tiles on the floor that, that, that it was once sort of beautifully tiled and, and now that the tiles are all broken and the, the stairs are broken. And, and I'm trying to figure out like where they would have placed the camera there. You know, if, if presumably it's shot on location, so it's not, you know, it's not in the studio, so it couldn't be on a crane. But if you look at the physical space, it's hard to imagine that there would have been a place two stories up in this lobby that they could have put the camera and then pointed it down and then, you know, cranked it to the left and stuff. If you get a chance to watch the film, it's quite remarkable. It looks like it was shot on another planet, you know, and then all those great shots of, of, of that, that staircase going down, you know, so three flights of stairs, just sort of one, just in one unbroken line uh, uh, at the end when he's, when he's leaving, it's really, really remarkable and once again a beautifully shot film and so many of these locations you know that was location scouts probably had these things coded out you would say okay we'll shoot this scene over in 4b and 4b meant this one location i mean they were just they were just pulling these things out of a hat at this point if you think if you see the way that these these locations recur in film after film after film and even after all of that they really make in this film they make those those places look even weirder and more threatening and foreboding and claustrophobic than they had in in previous films. It's really quite astonishing. Well, just like we had the microfilm in Pickup on South Street, which this film reminds me a lot of in many ways, uh, especially, I guess, because of the communist angle and the idea of, you know, the commies getting stuff that we might not have, uh, even though they... To, to your point, Andrew, they never come out and say that Soberin is a commie or anything like that. It's just with the, the nuclear angle and this being 1955 Cold War era, the great what's it, as Velda calls it, the great prop, the great MacGuffin that is in here, that is just a light in a box with, again, an audio effect. And that just hissing man's voice just going... It's amazing that that can be so menacing. You know, you're talking about camera angles making this thing just so unusual. But just even the the the, the MacGuffin itself is such an unusual MacGuffin. And, and of course, we'll see it again and again and other things. Like, of course, everybody remembers Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, which had almost the exact same thing in there. But then, of course, you know, Pulp Fiction would pick up on this and other things where we just have glowing suitcase, the glowing uh, box when it comes to Raiders. And yeah, the, the the other thing that comes into it with Raiders is that whole idea of don't look at it, Marion. You know, it's it's so much that story of Lot that Sobrin mentions later on. Another reference that we have happening in this film, another biblical reference as well. The head of the Medusa, that is what is in the box. Terrific scene where we finally get to see Sobrin and he has that conversation with um, Lily. And you just know, you know what Lily's going to do. You know, Lily know what's in that box and there's no way she's gonna you're gonna stop her doing that. I mean no way you're gonna stop her opening that box. It's also interesting because uh when when you know when Mike first finds the box in the locker room of the swimming club, which is great, that there's there's this sort of gigantic nuclear state secret just sort of hiding in this locker room in the um in the swimming club. Um and he opens it and he gets the radiation burn. You know, and later he opens the box and he sort of he jumps back from the box and then later on his police buddy sort of grabs his wrist and you can see that he's got this sort of radiation burn on his wrist and it 
of course, he's already dead probably from that. Isn't he? I mean, he's, well, that, 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 that's it for you, Mike. I mean, it might take you a while, but you've already, you've already had your lethal dose of radiation. And this thing is just bouncing around the film, radiating people left, right and centre, even, right. even though they don't know it at the time. Well, Ray Dyker has the radiation burns on his face. Of course. Yes, yes. During the, so, I hadn't seen so, that so up. So presumably yeah. this is killing everybody that it comes into contact with. We're not exploring that as a plot. So when she opens it up, the movie has been setting this whole thing up for an hour and a half that that this thing is lethal and all you need to do is open it up a little bit and you're dead. And as Mike points out, less is more, right? We open it up and it's a light and a guy going into the microphones. What could be better than that? Like, how could they possibly have topped that with with a more, uh, I don't know, with, with something more, more gruesome, more spectacular. There's, there's no way they possibly could have have improved on the impact of that scene. The script is also really good too. When when the when um, Hammer's cop buddy is is basically the final conf- the confrontation between them when the, you know the cops basically telling him what's going or in, inferring what's going on. There's no long. He's not going to dialogue. We're not going to get the whole thing wrapped up. He's just going to say, try and understand. I'm going to tell you some words. Try and understand what they mean. Manhattan Project, Los Alamos, Trinity. And that's, it's, it's such a great less is more yeah. script. And we, that's, it's ter- that, when I hear that, every time I see that scene, I'm just terrified by it. Of course, Mike, not, not, in some respects, not the sharpest tool in the box or just not self-aware, doesn't understand it. That simple box, the sound effect, the simple script around it, um, the fact that it's already killing everyone. If you don't get killed by someone else for being near it, it will kill you for being near it. We can look back at the entire film and know that most of the characters with speaking roles, they're pretty much doomed. Yeah. It, it, it really is Pandora's box. It's, it's all the evil in the world. Well, these days in movies, you can be five miles from a nuclear blast and have no problems whatsoever which is slightly unrealistic but you know i think of of like the recent godzilla film where they set off a nuclear bomb maybe you know 10 miles outside of san francisco and no one seems to have a problem with it i much more uh enjoy the thought of ralph meeker losing his hair within a week and just being dead within two weeks because that's really much more true to life when it comes to this and even when it comes to that original ending where just the house blows up and we never see Mike and Velda get out of the house. That works for me. That is the perfect downer ending, and I actually buy that more than I buy the the quote unquote real ending, which was them getting out of the house and going into the surf. And I guess the waters may be protecting them, but I think people just don't like to think of how dangerous radiation is and that they would like to believe that it could just be contained inside of the house and the house is going to explode. But my God, it is so much more dangerous than that. I mean, it's not where you can just put yourself in a refrigerator and get blasted out of Los Alamos a few miles land and be fine. I'm sorry, Dr. Jones, but you're going to die of leukemia within at least six months. Mike Hammer has the Donald Trump version of nuclear war and radiation, I think, which is it sort of can happen over there and it's not it's not going to damage me. I'm, I'm 40 metres away from it. I'll be okay. I think that second ending is um, 
far more bittersweet. It is, is far more noir. The, the scene of them going into the surf because it's just a temporary reprieve. We know that basically they're dead and nothing's going to stop that. They've they've had such a massive dose of radiation. So it's just it's just a, it's just a very temporary reprieve. I love that. Well, you know, in 1955, that would have been right around the time that people in the U.S. would have seen the horrific radiation-driven uh, birth defects in Japan. Mm, absolutely. The awareness of what all of that means it, it, we're on a different planet now. I mean, if you go to see a, a movie like Broken Arrow, where pain in the ass guy that talks like Jack Nicholson, what's his name? Christian uh, Slater. Yeah, Christian Slater, where he yep. dies <laughs> underwater and survives the uh, uh, the nuclear blast. Uh, that the universal knowledge of the abject horror of nuclear radiation as a, you know, as a fallout of nuclear war. That was an obsession of every human being on the planet in 1955. And it's, it's been sort of normalized. Like now people think of nukes and they just think of big bombs that blow lots of shit up. You know what I mean? It's like, and I would be fascinated how many people in 1955, when they saw that ending on the beach, were mindful of the fact that they were obviously going to die of radiation poisoning because the film clearly sets that up. That's, the film has spent two hours laying that out, right? That anyone who comes near this thing is going to be killed by it. And when I first saw the film under its old version, where it looks like uh, Hammer is gut shot and dies in the house, Velda never gets out, and then, and then they just, they just they're immolated as the house goes up, that seemed very satisfying to me as a, as a bleak nihilistic ending, which once again, really quite surprised me for a, you know, Hollywood movie in 1955 based on a long running, highly successful literary property. But I would really love to know how many people at the time really picked up on what the film was clearly telling us, which is they're, they're dead already. It really doesn't matter because I, I think, I think, the, I think the film has, has, spent an awful lot of uh, it's given us a lot of information over the course of the film that that's true and it's and that information was certainly ready to hand in the broader culture to the people who paid you know to buy a movie ticket to see that movie in 1955 and and so you know my initial response when I saw the original alternate ending was I was kind of disappointed and it actually took me several viewings before I came around to to your perspective which is yes actually it's even worse. It's even more bleak. Uh, but once again, uh, there, we can't get in that time machine and interview people coming out of the movie theater. Boy, that would be a great, great app for a film historian to have. To throw in uh, a cultural reference, which is, I think, as, as, as in some respects is out there as Broken Arrow, a film I haven't thought about for about 25 years. Haven't um, missed a damn thing, son. The Masters of Sex, you know, that series about Masters and Johnson. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, I watched series one of that. I mean, it took me ages to get to it. I watched series one of that, and there's a scene, there's an episode set later on in scene one where they're in the hospital and there's some sort of nationwide drill for nuclear war, and there's all these dramas taking place around the hospital, but the backdrop of the dramas is 
We've been told civil def- the entire country is having a civil defence drill today. Today we're going to do the entire ho- the entire hospital is going to act like there's been a nuclear war. All of you staff are patients. All of you staff are the people treating them. Blah blah blah. I found that quite fascinating. I, I had no I, I knew there was all that stuff around duck and cover, and I knew there was. Obviously, it was in the papers and there was the fear of nuclear war and there was the fear when the Russians got the bomb. And I think that Masters and Johnston, so that Masters of Sex episode is set earlier in the 50s than 1955 because I think the Korean War is still going on, but I can't, not clear about that. So people must have had a sense. And, and the thing that was going on in this Masters of Sex episode was that this was a nationwide thing. Every hospital in America was doing this drill. People had various responses to it. Some, a lot of people were just ho-hum, we're doing this, it's a drill, not really understanding what's going on. Other people were patently quite terrified about, about the prospect of this. And um, as you say, Kevin, it, this was in the culture at the time, this intense fear of nuclear war and of, of, the, of the destruction it, it could render. It's interesting to think how that came to bear in the viewing at the time of this film. And most critics would have been far too busy tutting at the fact that it was a Mickey Spillane film to really think about some of these themes back then. But it's interesting to sort of think about how it would have been viewed. Some popular culture texts have such low cultural pedigree, they're not really subject to that kind of serious consideration until years later, uh, usually by people uh, writing and speaking in the French language. Hey, Mike, you're around my age. Did you ever uh, have any of those bomb drills and crap at your grade school when you were a kid? We, we had them all the time in Houston. We didn't have those. We did have a lot of uh, the civil defense placards up on the wall. I was more the, the age of watching the day after and just getting the shit scared out of me. So I was just living in constant fear at all times throughout um, pretty much the late 70s when I found out what nuclear War, uh, weapons were up until at least 89. So a good 15 years of, of abject terror. Okay, well, fortunately, we're not heading back that way. And by the way, Rocket Man should have been handled a long time ago. No, it's, it's no coincidence that Threads is coming out on Blu-ray now. You mentioned the French, and the French loved this movie. This was one of those movies that really touched off a lot of criticism and uh, the good kind of criticism in the pages of Postif and Cahiers du Cinema. Aldrich was one of those uh, directors that uh, came under a lot of the auteur theory scrutiny, which was fantastic because he did a lot of great work. I have a feeling that uh, Lily Carver's haircut might have inspired Gene Seberg's haircut in Breathless. I don't know if, if that holds any water or if Gene Seberg was already walking around with that, but this to me almost seems like a nod to that. Well, she's even wearing a trench coat in those scenes. New York Herald Tribune! New York Herald Tribune! She's wearing a trench coat. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that until you and I talked on the phone, Mike, but I think that's absolutely, clearly true. Gabby Rogers, not necessarily the best actress. Am I right in that? I seem to remember reading that somewhere that there was there were there were issues during the film, yes, with her not the most accomplished performer. Mike, Mike, don't leave me. They were at the door last night. They tried to get in. They tried to get in. They tried to get in. Hey, I get your clothes. Taken today. Uh, 
it, it she sort of has a sort of um, there's this weird she, she, she's part femme fatale, she's part childlike, she's part also there's something brewing there, and of course what's brewing there is what you see in the final scenes of the film when she shoots Doctor Soberin and basically opens the box. Her character kind of works now, I think. Yeah, sort of post facto method performance as a person who is always pretending to be someone that she isn't in whatever yes. circumstance she's in, and so frightened that she doesn't know who she's supposed to pretend to be at this moment to survive the situation that she's in. And I particularly love that blocking of the shot when he comes into the bedroom and she's in the bed once again, you know, uh, all we get is the you know wrought iron, you know, there's no pillows in the bed or anything. And she's pointing that pointing the gun right at his crotch. That, that, yeah. that whole scene takes place with her, you know, okay, I might be this doe-eyed, you know, terrified girl, but, you know, one flick of the finger and the, you know, Mike's famous, uh, uh, you know, Mike's silver hammer is gone. It's, it's not just the stylistic aspects of it too. I mean, the um, touched on the way that Spillane wrote, you know, wrote so fast. He was picking up on certain subcultural themes going on. And, and, and the book, it's really interesting, the book is actually not bad. I mean, the prose in the book is just lightning fast and it's, it's, it's so it's going so fast it has a it has a wonderful sort of um, quality to it in some respects but of course the other aspect of the film that really appealed to the French particularly the sort of French surrealists was the way it fed into their whole take on the incoherence of everyday life you know to them hammer was a provocateur and you know they were really aware that um, an everyday there's an everyday bias in mass culture that's culture is often it just moves so quickly and it seems so it seems so incoherent and so fast and it's hard to pick up on it and I think this is something that this um this film also sort of um picks up on and some of it some some terrific scenes so much of it just doesn't really make sense I mean and and so much of it is these weird stilted surreal encounters I was thinking one of the one of the um scenes I, I I was watching with particular interest last time I looked at the film most recently when I looked at the film was that scene when Spillane goes to Strother Martin's house yes in, to interview to talk to him about well he's the truck driver and so one of the one of the one of the one of the ways that he's slowly starting to piece the case together is people people have people are dying and there's these two related deaths that are related to the woman he picked up in the car and he's sort of investigating those. And I'm think, I think I'm right in saying one of those deaths, a guy gets hit by a truck. Right. And he go, and, and, and there's no introduction to it really. He just ends up in this surreal dinner, dinner time scene where you, there's, the, there's the nuclear family, the wife, the, the wife, the daughter, the son, sitting at the t- and Strother Martin, that the camera is angled so that the wife, and the son's heads are behind, you know, we're looking at the back of their heads, I think, or to the side of them, and the daughter's somewhere in the background there too. The conversation, they don't say a single thing, and Strother Martin is just this sort of everyday Joe truck driver who's obviously, who was the guy who drove the truck who killed this guy, and it wasn't, he's feeling really guilty because it was an accident. Um it's the most bizarre scene because they're sort of the conversation sort of going at cross purposes. Strother Martin's character is just depressed because he killed this guy. The wife and the kids aren't saying anything. Mike's just trying to pump him for information. 
it's full of these incoherent, it's full of incoherent encounters like that. The great bit of business in that scene is that, that the Strother Martin character realizes that Mike is his better, you know, his social better. And he's sitting at the dinner table and he keeps defensively refilling Mike's beer, beer from the bottle. Yep. And he does it in the scene long after the beer is gone from the bottle. Like every few, he, he keeps going over and just turning it upside down and shaking the bottle over the, over the glass. You know, this, 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 um, uh, uh, terrified, punctilious attempt at, at hospitality or something. It's, it, it's, it's a really, really amazing scene. I'm really glad you pointed that out. Another scene that really, plays like a, a non sequitur to me is the scene between Hammer and Percy Helton's uh, uh, coroner. Where, where, Mr. where. Is playing Get Smart. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay. That guy, yes. Percy Helton, he was in every single television program of the 1950s and the 1960s. Just pick, write down a bunch of TV shows on index cards, put them in a little ashtray, go to IMDb, and you'll be able to tear each of them in half. Um, but at yep. first he seems like he doesn't want to say anything. He's like looking down and looking away and cheating away from the camera. And then, and then as the scene goes on, he gets more and more arrogant and aggressive. It's not, uh, what we would call, um, a shaded individualized performance characteristic of, uh, a, a you know supporting player in a Hollywood film of the fifties that it there's just there's just these weird little ticks and bits of business that they give him that just kind of don't they don't match up into a sort of coherent scene and and you know and when uh, Hammer slams his hand in the drawer I can't say I was uh, particularly uh, distraught for the poor doc uh, but but then there's and then that, that other great scene in the athletically you might this uh, you know and he and he you know, beats the you know the the washroom attendant up or whatever, uh, but you know I I totally agree with your with your thoughts that that there are these the film is full of these strange little non sequiturs. Mike, it's your point, right? That the old Italian guy whispers to Mike, and there's nobody else there. No reason why we wouldn't know what it was, but you know we we don't get to hear it. And the movie is full of those those little bits of of strangeness, these little bits of non sequiturs that really don't seem to be pushing the film toward the kind of unity that we often see in a Hollywood film where each scene exists to answer a question, pose another one, and then move on. There are these little bits where things kind of stall or, or, or meander in some way. And normally if we are not privy to the information, we're not going to find out what that information was for multiple, multiple scenes, maybe 15, 20 minutes at least in a movie. And it's pretty much like the next scene where he's going to visit uh, Lily. And it's like, so what did it matter? There was no reason why we weren't privy to that information. Right. Screenwriters call that a, di- a dialogue hook. And they just, they just killed the dialogue hook, you know, and there's no real reason to do it. It's just a strange thing to do. Then you get that amazing scene of the, let's call it the audible echo, where it's Mike talking to the person that rented out Christine's room. What do you want? I want to see the super. What can I do for you? There's a card on the mailbox there, Christina Bailey. The police have already been through her apartment. He told you the police have already been through her apartment. I want to go through her apartment. Ask him who he is, Horace. Tell her to shut up. Shut up. Can we spend a moment on one of my um, 
favourite film noir type scenes, which is the mobsters around the pool. There's lots going on in that scene. There's the whole. Um, there's obviously that, 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 that's all. Those scenes are always supposed to impart the power of the mobster. The fact you know this this gilded world that they live in, but then also it's it's overlapped with it's overlapped with violence. Um, as I say, one of my favourite, not just film noir scenes, but my favourite crime fiction crime film scenes are when they show you know the debauched or rich scene around the pool with all the mobsters. Right. But the mobsters are this pack of sort of weird, weird, you know, Jack E. Lamb and Jack Lambert who, you know, the, uh, again, they were in so many film noirs as sort of um, mobster enforcers. Their, do- their interaction with each other, they're not really inter- interacting with each other. And then there's that bizarre scene where Mike arrives and then there's that um, it's Maxine Carr Friday. Yeah, the woman who's the half sister of the um, the mobster Carla Vello. Yeah, the butler from Citizen Kane. Yes, and but it doesn't even really that serves no point. All of that, you know, except to I suppose illustrate Mike's virility and his attract. You know, the fact that women are attracted to Mike Hammer. That whole scene, which goes on for several minutes, of her pulling up directly behind him, then taking him into the into the house, then basically getting him a drink, and they have all this small talk, and she's sort of coming on to him, but you don't really know if she is. It's just one big, as you said, uh, Kevin. It, it's just one big non sequitur, and then there's that weird, weird fight in the pool. Cabana, is it Cabana? Is that the right way yeah. you pronounce? It? We don't we don't do we don't do Cabanas in Australia. So, and then there's possibly one of the you know, and then there's when Evelo Evelo basically confronts Hammer, and they're sort of having that weird. It doesn't confront him, but they're having that weird circular discussion where they're both sort of dancing around whatever issue that we're still not clear that they're dancing around. The whole thing is quite surreal, and and it's one giant non sequitur, and it works fantastically. I think these guys are like Martin Scorsese gangsters. They're at the lowest level of this conspiracy. You know, these are guys that would have gotten into organized crime through the aluminum siding business or something, you know, and one of the signs that that Dr. Soberin is so powerful that, that he's, he's controlling all of this just from off screen somewhere, you know, sugar, small house and Charlie Max. I mean, they're, they're almost like a sort of, um, uh, you know, Mutt and Jeff, you know, uh, enforcer team. And, you know, I always thought, that Paul Stewart, the guy who plays Carl Lavello, who's the father of Susan Cain, he's one of the scariest like villains ever. If you've ever seen a film noir called The Window about this little boy who's like witnessed a murder from across the way in his tenement apartment, he scares the hell out of you. And just the the matter of fact way that he talks about the bomb that they put in his car. Yes. Like, you know, so two guys like just shooting two guys in like low rent suburbia shooting pool. You know, and one guy says to the other, like, yeah, I put sugar in your gas tank. I know it was kind of a dick move, but, you know, you, you, you got to you – know, it's, it's just the the sheer tackiness and and idiocy and pettiness and, and absolute myopic incomprehension of these, these people at this, this very, very low part of organized crime, you know, that Mike is clearly, like, way smarter than they are. He's always a step ahead of – of all of them, as we move out and as we get further into the mysteries, we see that we see that there are these very, very powerful forces controlling everything from a uh, uh, from a distance. Um, can we talk about Carl Avello's death scene? That's really my favorite scene in the film. 
it's a clinic in male masochism and paranoia with the mic face down and then Dr. Soberg comes in and gives him uh, the shot of sodium pentothal, you know, with, with all that that, you know, all that sort of post-war paranoia about psychiatry and then, you know, a man on his stomach being poked by some, something uh, from behind, not a, not a comforting image of post-war masculinity, at least to some. His ability to somehow get out of that and then say in the voice of Paul Stewart, Suge, he talked, he's all yours. We come in and, uh, and of course, uh, this is the big payoff for the stuff that, Mike, you were talking about, that we never see Hammer's martial arts skills, right? That it always takes place off screen. And that sets up the scene where we think that it's still Hammer on the bed. And, and, and so, so Sugar comes in, he, uh, he opens up the switchblade, and he sticks it into the back. And I have no idea how they got that gurgling sound past the production code. That is one of the most gruesome sound effects in a production code era film. You should really listen to that because you can actually hear the blood going into his lungs and being gagged up. You know, and that's when and that's when we cut to the close up of Lavella and, and that we see, you know, we see that he's the you know, he's the person. And of course, Mike comes out and kicks everybody's ass. And of course, we think he's about to save the day. And then it turns out he gets gut shot. You know, Gabrielle opens the box and everybody's everybody's dead. It's a wonderful, wonderful bit of, of 50s violence, I think. And somewhere and somewhere while all that's going on, Charlie Max, OK, Jack Elam is listening, is listening to a fight or the races somewhere because that's all he seems to do. Because I think he spends that entire scene you you've just described, Kevin, which is a terrific scene, listening listening to the fights. Yeah, right, right, and that and that's where we hear he's, he's only that's half what, paying attention to his job. Yeah, right, and that's where we hear that that's 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 the that's the trainer that Mike was speaking for speaking to earlier, selling yes. out the fighter that everybody knows. Of course, in the middle of all of this violence and drugging up the protagonist, so I, I didn't notice that until like the seventh or eighth time that I that I saw the film. But like you said, Charlie Max, that's the Jack Jackie Lynn character, Sugar Smallhouse is the, is the only Yeah, he's always listening, presumably because he's got he's got money on all of these fixed gambling things, right? You know, and that's that's his idea about getting ahead in organized crime is is knowing what what athletic events are fixed and then betting on them. You know, I mean, that, like he, cited, he set his sights very, very low in terms of what his career arc in crime is going to be, right? You know, and then, of course, uh, you know, he's, he's just this minor pawn in this, in this much, much larger, more far-reaching, more cosmically paranoid, paranoia-fueled story. I keep talking about how the cheapness of the movie is actually to its benefit. And one of those moments that... It's kind of to, to round out this part of the discussion, one of those moments that I absolutely love is I've seen the the opening of the uh, the the case so many times and have heard that scream that Lily gives. And it wasn't until the last time that I was watching this that I realized that at the beginning, when Christine is getting tortured, that that's the same scream. They use that same scream both times and it's almost like this cyclical nature of the movie and also that we're just going to continue to murder women in this movie one one roommate is gone with that scream the other one is gone at the end of the film with that exact same scream 
Well, they're doubled in, in throughout the film in many, many ways, and that would make sort of thematic sense. But come on, who, who, they might have they might have brought like Marnie Nixon in to do the scream, and they're like, that's the best damn scream I've ever heard. They got Nancy Allen, and they got John Travolta to record it. It works both artistically, and if you want to, you know, once again, we we can talk about all the ways that you said that the the movie employs these cost cutting measures that actually adds to its its effectiveness, its its indirection, its its power of suggestion, its power of illusion. And I certainly think that's a perfect example of, of, of what they were up to and how, why they succeeded. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Max Allen Collins, the director of Mike Hammer's Mickey Spillane, and we'll be back with that after these brief messages. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. Out. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. 
Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. How does a nice boy from Iowa end up writing hard-boiled fiction for so much of his career? It's mostly the fault of TV networks in the late 50s and early 60s when they decided to fill the airwaves with private eye shows. And uh, I'd, ar- I'd already read Sherlock Holmes, so I already had that interest. But in around 58, 59, they, they started showing things like Peter Gunn and 77 Sunset Strip, and then a number of shows that were based on existing uh, mystery stories or mystery series. There was Thin Man Show. There was a Philip Marlowe show. There was significantly a Mike Hammer show. So those all drove me into the original books. I always was somebody, and still am, somebody who liked to read the source material if I like a, a movie or TV show. And I'm the same with the history. If, if there's something historical, I will tend to go out and find something on that subject. That's what led me into reading uh, all the Private Eye stuff, and particularly Mickey Spillane. Interestingly, I had a goal of being a cartoonist early on. From age probably seven to into early high school, I, I thought I would be a cartoonist. I was fascinated with Dick Tracy and Mad Magazine and EC Comics and all of that kind of stuff. And Red Spider-Man, well, if I, I wish I had all that stuff because I would, would be able to retire now. But, you know, but Spider-Man, number one, and Amazing Fantasy, number one off the newsstands and Fantastic Four and the Avengers, all that stuff. So I, I was very, very prone to look at comics, you know, as a career. I used to distribute my own version of Mad Magazine to people. One one issue, I didn't mimeograph, I just passed it around and they'd bring it back to me. But then finally, uh, when, when the private eye stuff hit me so hard and I started reading this uh, stuff, when I started reading Chandler and Hammett and Spillane and James M. Cain, not a private eye writer, but, but a crime writer, I was just so taken with the writing, what now we kind of look at as noir poetry, that that drew me in. And I started, so the, the drawing fell to the wayside and, and the writing became the, the centerpiece. And I was sending stuff out in the mail all through high school. Uh, I sent my first novel out probably when I was 15. Thank God I didn't get it published. By the time I'd gotten to uh, the University of Iowa, uh, which was as a, as a junior, I, I really had already 
I had already written four novels that fortunately, again, were never published, but by the time I got there, I had a finished novel. And by the time you get your fifth novel, you either are, you better be pretty good. And so I, I went to, when I went to the University of Iowa, I was really a publishable writer. And that, that kind of set me, set me aside and set me apart, which uh, was a very, very helpful thing to me in, in getting my career off the ground pretty early on. Well, what was that first break for you? Was it short story writing? Was it comic writing? Was it having your first novel published? Well, the very first thing was a, um, a story, a kind of an essay that I wrote, maybe more a memoir, because it was the thing I wrote the day John, uh, John F. Kennedy was killed. I wrote a piece about that day at school, what had happened. Uh, it was called Where Were You When It Happened? That won some things. That won some awards. I, I w- would have been a sophomore in high school at that point. And it was published in a literary magazine. And so that was my first publication. And then I started sending stuff in the mail and, and, of course, not telling anybody I was submitting to that I was a teenager and got a lot of positive feedback, but did not ever get a did not make a sale. And then when I got into the University of Iowa and had I had a novel that I'd been working on, that was kind of ready to go. I became kind of uh, uh, I want to say a protege, but my instructor was a guy named at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop was a guy named Richard Yates, a very important mainstream writer. Um, He wrote Revolutionary Road, which is a novel that was made into a movie by Sam Mendes. You'll like that because there was a movie called Road to Perdition, another road movie that was made by Sam Mendes, who has probably no idea that he had published me and my mentor. The way that happened was uh, I went to I went up there to the University of Iowa. I live in Muscatine, Iowa. I have lived here my whole life, and I went up there uh, knowing I was going to be submitting to the workshop. You know, they only had a couple of you only had one undergraduate section, and it was hard to get into that. Just like it's hard to get into the uh, the graduate workshop. I drove up the forty miles to Iowa City, and I found this instructor, and I came in telling him, "Oh, I'm." I want to be the next Dashiell Hammett. I want to be the next Mickey Spoy. And I, here's my book. I'm so, you know, I just was full of enthusiasm. And then he looked at me and he said, um, he had kind of a somber kind of way about him. He said, you can leave your book, but I don't want to leave any, any hope out for you because we don't do this kind of thing here. We're serious about what we do. We're serious writers here. This is where you do the slide whistle sound effect. So I left it thinking, and I'd always planned to go to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. I mean, as soon as I knew about it, knew it was in my backyard, I was going to go there. And so a couple of days go by, and I get and, and the phone rings. And my wife answers it, and she says, it's that Richard Yates, that instructor you, you saw the other day. And I got on the phone with him, and he said, I'm calling because I owe you an apology. I read your book, and you're very professional, and it's very clear you're serious about what you're doing. And I want to have you in the workshop. And then there was this kind of long pause where he said, uh, I called you tonight because, uh, you know, we were watching the, uh, the Carol Burnett show and made me think of you. And that quarter, that kind of seemed like a non sequitur to me, obviously. And he said, I was watching that and, and thinking how much we enjoy it and how entertained we are every week. And it occurred to me that there was nothing wrong with being an entertainer. And after that, he tucked me under his arm. Uh, he 
got me my first agent, and I only had two over my whole career. The agent uh, took the book. The agent said something very interesting. He, he was a guy named Knox Berger, who was a famous, uh, not, not only an agent, but a famous editor. He had been the editor at Gold Medal Books, and he published uh, people like John D. MacDonald and Richard Stark, who was Don Westlake uh, under, under, under a pen name. And he said about me, he is a, uh, your, your friend, your young writer friend is a blacksmith in an automotive world. And that always struck me. And I, I always was kind of, well, really complimented by it because I knew I was trying to, you know, I knew I was trying to write 1930s and 1940s suspense novels, hard boiled. That opened the door for me. That was the path. Submitted another book, which was written under Yates in the graduate workshop. And a couple of weeks before graduation, both books sold. I was the only writer in the Iowa's Writers Workshop that year who, who had made that kind of sale. And I kind of immediately went from being a, a sort of black sheep into someone everybody was claiming. But really only Richard Yates could, could logically play, uh, claim me. And I've never really looked back. I taught part-time at a community college for five years and in the early part of my career. And during that period, I was writing the first of the Nolan books and the Mallory books, and I wrote the first Quarry book. And after five years, I got the Dick Tracy comic strip. I got the writing job uh, on the Dick Tracy comic strip. And then I've never worked an honest day in my life since. How was that kind of bouncing back and forth between these, what would end up being you know, major, long-running character-based novels between, like, Corey and Nolan, say? To some degree, I kind of wrote each series out, at least for a while. I The Mallory's came early on, and, and the Nolan's came early on, and I, ha- I haven't written a, a Mallory since the fifth one. I, I never was really crazy about that series because it was essentially me. It was a mystery writer who was in a small town, and I just felt like there are more interesting people in the world than me. And so I, I just kind of shut that one down. And Nolan kind of ran its course. Then I got to writing Nathan Heller, and that really was my focus. But I've never really had much trouble with bouncing back and forth in the, in the way you're talking about doing it. I used to do Dick Tracy on Mondays, for example. Every Monday I'd do Dick Tracy, and then the rest of the week I'd work on my on my novels. And then when I lost the Dick Tracy strip after 15 years, that's when my I started doing uh, movie tie-ins and TV tie-ins as kind of a day job because I had various publishers, uh, kind of big-time publishers, who did not want me to over-publish. They didn't want me, they wanted me to only publish one book a year with them. And they didn't pay enough for me to just do that. So that's when I put the word out that I was available for the for the tie-in work. And I really liked doing that for a couple reasons. One is I was pretty lucky in getting quality properties. I mean, I got to do Saving Private Ryan, and I got to do American Gangster and Air Force One, some very major things. I got to do Maverick, which was based on a TV show I loved as a kid. And what, what doing the tie-ins did for me was allow me to work in a lot of genres that I couldn't otherwise uh, work in because, you know, if had I gone to my agent and said, you know what I want to do this year? I want to do a Western. I want to do a sword and sorcery novel. I want to do a science fiction novel. 
you know, and so on. He just laugh at me. So that you're 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 a mystery writer. Forget it. And but I wrote, you know, I wrote Maverick. I wrote the Mummy, and I wrote the Scorpion King, and I wrote Waterworld, and you know, so uh, I did a number of war novels. Uh, did the Wind Talkers as well as well as Saving Private Ryan and. That gave me, I think that really broadened me as a writer because I got to do different things. I'm not really doing any tie-in work anymore to speak of, but that was something that uh, I found very rewarding. And the other thing about them is a lot of the readership of tie-in books is young. It's a lot of the tie, if you wonder, well, who reads these tie-in books? A lot of junior high kids read tie-in books. And I always felt like if I got them as a reader while they were in junior high, there's a good chance they'll stick with me through their lifetime and mine. And I think that I think it's worked out that way. I have always been fascinated by tie-in books, especially even now reading them, uh, trying to glean more information about perhaps the production of a film by the tie-in, because it seems like sometimes there are the, just these amazing differences. Like I always think of the Gremlins tie-in book or mm-hmm. Snakes on a Plane tie-in book. What is kind of the, and I'm sure it wasn't the same for any two books, but what was the general process as far as when they bring you in and how they introduce you to the property? What you're talking about really falls into two areas. One of the reasons why the books are very interesting in the way that you mentioned is that oftentimes the writer is working from a script that is not the final script. And so those differences you will see have to do with the fact that rewrites happened later. And you tend to also see scenes that were cut uh, when they tightened the movie up, but that scene was in the screenplay, then that's probably going to go into the novel. Now, for me, my process, and, and this is only my process, it's kind of something I got away with that, in a way, I shouldn't have been able to. But what I did was I would be extremely faithful to the screenplay, but I would I would add to it, in particular in the fashion of, in the screenplay, often they'll jump from A to C, and then I would write B, you know, that kind of thing. They just go somewhere, and they don't tell you how they get there. And in the novel, you kind of have to know how they got there, for example. That also is how, how tie-ins do get fleshed out, because there there are steps that the screenwriter has been able to skip. The best way to describe this is with something actually that I learned at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop from a guy named William Price Fox. He told the story of the Indian behind the tree. He said, in a movie, the cowboys are sitting around the campfire and they're talking about what they're going to do the next day. The camera pulls back and there's an Indian behind the tree. And he's heard it all. And he sneaks off, he jumps on the horse, and he rides off. In a novel, you have to know how the Indian knew to get there, who the Indian is, what kind of horse does he ride, where is he going? All of these things that you have to know in a novel that you're expected to provide, that in a movie or TV show, they just show you, and it's a real guy in an Indian outfit. So you say, yeah, it's an Indian, and there's a tree, he's behind it, he heard it, he's gone. He's going to go tell everybody what he saw. So to, there's a lot of that in, in, in movie tie-ins, is explaining how that Indian got behind the tree and where he's going with the information he's just gleaned. So that's, that's another part of it. Now, one of the things I did, the thing I got away with was that I always essentially threw the dialogue out. 
And the reason for that is the dialogue in a movie and the dialogue in a novel are kind of two different animals. And something that plays for half a page in, in a screenplay may play for two pages or even three pages in a novel. It'll be fleshed out. And again, this a little bit has to do with the fact that you're seeing it when you're, when you're seeing the movie. But also, there's the factor of screenplays are tend to be about 100 to 120 pages long. And you're usually contracted to deliver a 300-page novel. So when they come to you and say, well, this stuff isn't in the movie script, you say, well, if we cut all the stuff that isn't in the movie script from my novel, you're going to have a pamphlet. And that actually happened to me semi-tragically with Road to Perdition, where I you know, found out they were going to do a novelization of the movie based on, on the graphic novel I wrote, and I managed to get the assignment. And then I wrote about a 90,000-word book that put a lot of stuff from the uh, graphic novel in. And then they came to me and made me take everything out that wasn't in the screenplay. They even they even made me, when they cut the movie, they even made me take scenes out that they had shot and were in, in, in the earlier cut. And by the time they published it, it was about 40,000 words. It made the New York Times bestseller list, which was bittersweet, to say the least. Now, the happy ending is that a company called Brash Books went to bat for me and negotiated with DreamWorks just last year to get the rights to the complete novel version, the 90,000-word novel version. And that that is now in print. And so if you go to Amazon or wherever, you can order that and see what the, the novel was supposed to be. And they also did uh, uniform editions of my two prose sequels, which are is Road to Purgatory and Road to Paradise. So there was a happy ending to that. And I had to do the cutting. I had to cut the 50,000 words myself. Not fun. Not fun. How did you land the Dick Tracy gig? Some people think that the fact that I knew Chester Gould, which I did, had played a role. Gould was somebody I really admired, and I had sent him letters as a kid, and I had started corresponding with him when I first started to publish uh, around 1973. And I eventually became close enough to him that maybe once a year I'd go in there and have lunch with him in Chicago. I'd go, go to the Tribune Tower and see him up there, and then we'd go to this thing called the Tavern Club, which was a very exclusive club for journalists and, and others. So I knew him. And then out of the blue, I got, and he, he did not have anything to do with it. Out of the blue, I got a phone call from an editor. This editor said that uh, he was doing a talent hunt for someone to take the writing over on Dick Tracy, that Chester Gould was about to retire. And I was someone whose, whose name had been called to his attention. And it, it was really almost fate because they had called an agent. And you know how many agents there are in New York City? They called an agent. It happened to be my agent. And and he, he said, yeah, I, I have someone who knows about comic strips and Dick Tracy. They have this this kid in Iowa who, who is a total comic book buff and comic strip buff. And you should, he's written several novels with, that have a character in them who's a comics collector. So you should, uh, you should try him. And they jotted my name down. And then they called an editor at another syndicate. And I had tried to develop something at that syndicate 
for this editor, and he had loved it, but hadn't gotten it through the through the whole process. And he had, he he said, well, "You know what you should get? There's this kid in Iowa." And then they they called one other person, and I now don't remember who it was, but anyway, they they called three people, and they all mentioned me. Now I had had two books published at this point, two very low end paperbacks. It was a miracle that they made those three phone calls and had my name come up. And then I was told, now this is a talent hunt. We're contacting a bunch of people. So now I knew Dick Tracy inside out. So that night I wrote a treatment for uh, this character, Angel Top, who was uh, Flat Top's daughter, who I created. And so I wrote that. It was maybe 20 pages. And then I wrote a piece on what I would do with the strip, my ideas for where, where the sh- strip should go over the next uh, decade. The next day I sent it special delivery because there was no... <laughs> there weren't faxes and there was no FedEx. I sent it special delivery. So my whole idea was I wanted to show them that not only was I good, but that I could deliver it right away, which is so important in the world of journalism and newspapers. And so they had it in a couple of days and I uh, got a phone call and they said they wanted to talk to me. And uh, I came into Chicago and took a meeting with the editor and the publisher. And I thought I was just being interviewed. Uh, among a bunch of people. I thought it was a job interview. And then about 15 minutes into it, I realized that they weren't asking me what I would do with, with Dick Tracy. They were asking me what I was going to do with Dick Tracy. And I realized I had the job. That was quite amazing. And at one point, I said, well, what about the talent hunt? And they said, well, when we read your, your submission, we, we shut it down. So that's how I got that strip. How I got fired was they hired at one point, they got a different editor in who, and he, he, did, he did not like me and he got rid of me. What is it they say to me? They say, uh, I hear you lost your job. And I say, no, I know right where it is. But when I go there, somebody else is doing it. That's what happened. And I have to tell you that it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I would have done Dick Tracy forever. I would have still been doing it because I was such a fan. And there are any number of things I would not have pursued if that had been the case. And two things that I did right around there in 1993, 94, I got into independent filmmaking. That was one of the things I did. And the other thing was I was at a comics convention where an editor sat me down and said, you know, you're one of the only writers, maybe the only writer at that point, who writes both mystery novels and comics. Because at that point I was doing a thing called Ms. Tree, what comic book, as well as the Dick Tracy strip which I had just lost. And he said, so we we're going to do a bunch of graphic novels with a noir theme. And we'd like to know if you'd like to do one of them. Do you have any ideas? And the God's honest truth is I didn't have any ideas, but off the top of my head, I pitched road to perdition, but I did not call it that. I called it gun and son, which the editor hated, but he loved the, cause I, I've been watching a lot of Japanese and Hong Kong, crime movies. And I, of course, seen, I don't think I'd even seen the manga of Lone Wolf and Cub yet, but I'd seen the movies, some of the movies. And I'd also seen a uh, John Woo movie that was a modern day version of Lone Wolf and Cub that did not credit Lone Wolf and Cub. And so I just, it, it, it just occurred to me that, you know, it would be easy to do a samurai as a gangster to say that that instead of being the you know the shogun's assassin he's the hitman for the godfather essentially i also had done 
some research in the Quad Cities about a guy named John Looney, who was essentially the godfather of uh, Rock Island in the Quad Cities, Iowa, Illinois, Quad Cities. And I'd read about him, and I'd, I'd really run across the research when I was working on my Heller books, my Nathan Heller novels. He took place a little bit earlier than any of the Heller stories, but I had held on to the um, to the research. So when I was sitting there talking to this editor, those two things kind of came together. The idea that this guy Looney, who had a crazy son who was homicidal, just like the guy that was played by Daniel Craig in the film. You know, so I took that idea of, well, let's have not a baby cart, but let's have a young, you know, 12 year old son and have him witness the, this crime, which actually was kind of out of the Dick Tracy movie. If you think about it, Junior in the Dick Tracy movie witnesses a crime. Of course, I'd written that book. So all of these things just sort of floated together. And I pitched this off the top of my head. And I don't imagine there's any chance I would have done that if I hadn't been fired from Dick Tracy. When did you meet Mickey Spillane and come to work with him? I had these two heroes as a as a young person from age seven to probably twelve. It was Chester Gould and Dick Tracy, and then at age about thirteen, I discovered the the My Camera novels by Mickey Spillane. I mean, he was the Beatles of crime fiction to me. I collected everything, every magazine appearance, everything I could find, and started writing him letters. And over a period of I don't know, 20 years, I wrote him probably 100 letters. So what happened was uh, I had done a number of articles about him and, frankly, defenses of him because he was incredibly targeted by social critics and by literary critics. He was considered to be a terrible writer and somebody who had, who had fostered a juvenile delinquency. I don't know if you know this, but in Seduction of the Innocent by Dr. Frederick Wortham, other than comic books, only one prose writer did he take on, and Wortham attacked Mickey Spillane. Everybody else was comics. Of course, Mickey had been a comics writer, which I don't think Wortham knew. I wrote any number of defenses of Mickey, and I became kind of known as this guy that was a Mickey Spillane buff, who was the, the go-to guy if you wanted something written about Spillane. So there was a convention, it's called VoucherCon, it's the Big Mystery Writers Convention. I'll spell it for you in case you want to check it. It's B-O-U-C-H-E-R-C-O-N. BoucherCon is named after Anthony Boucher, who was in the, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, the mystery fiction reviewer for the New York Times. And he had been someone who had attacked Mickey. He had been one of Mickey's most severe critics. He actually came around later to changing his mind. But he was part of that bunch of people that really attacked Mickey. So in 1981, this Con was going to be held in Milwaukee. And the people who ran the convention contacted me and said, would you be the liaison between the convention and Mickey Spillane? He's going to be one of our guests of honor. Of course, at that time, Mickey was doing the, the Miller Lite beer commercials. And Milwaukee, obviously, is the beer town. And so that was the connection of why they decided to go to Miller Brewing and say, would you, would you bring Mickey Spillane to uh, the uh, Milwaukee Boucher Con? The guys from the con walked me up to Mickey's room. And I have to tell you, the night before, I did not sleep. I was sick to my stomach. He was such a hero of mine. I just was so afraid that he would have feet of clay like the rest of us. And 
I heard some pretty wild stories about things he had done. There was a story that someone had sent him first editions of all the My Camera hardcovers, and that Mickey had shot them full of holes with a forty-five and sent them back. I mean, you know, so nutty stuff. I did not know what I was going to be in for. So they walked me up to the hotel room, knock on the door, and Mickey answers. And he was not tall, but he was wide and not, not fat. I mean, he just had broad shoulders. And he's probably about 5'8", but boy, he, he was larger than life, even at 5'8". And the representative from the convention said, Mickey, this is, this is Max Collins. And Mickey said, uh, well, I know Max. We've been corresponding for years. <laughs> I said, that's right, Mickey. A hundred letters from me and one letter from you, because he had written me one letter when I had sent him my first books. And he had written me a letter welcoming me to the mystery writing community. And I'd written him again, you know, 15 or 20 times. So uh, our correspondence was a little lopsided, but he, he loved that I said that. We hit it off immediately. And I did an interview with him in front of the convention, and it was a packed house. And within a, a month or so, I was visiting him at his home in South Carolina, and we became great friends. We worked on a lot of projects together. He was my son Nathan's godfather. You know, he was uh, my literary father, and I was his literary son, I guess. How did the documentary Mike Hammer's Mickey Spillane come about? The documentary Mike Hammer's Mickey Spillane, that came from Mickey's unwillingness to let me write a biography of him. He did not want a biography written. But I was also starting to do independent film, and he had he had appeared in two of my independent films as an actor. And so I said, well, why don't we do a kind of a biography-style hour about your life? And he was all for that. We went down there, and I shot five hours of interview footage with him. We got interviews with you know Shirley Eaton, who was in The Girl Hunters. The the uh, Shirley Eaton is the Golden Girl in uh, in Goldfinger, and we got. A Stacey Keach interview. We interviewed Jay Bernstein, who was the producer of the My Camera TV show. We got a lot of wonderful, wonderful footage. Speaking of BoucherCon, there was a BoucherCon that summer that I was working on the documentary. And I, at the BoucherCon, I set a room up and I, I spread the word out that I wanted anybody who wanted to talk to me about Mickey Spillane was welcome. And we got 25 or 30 mystery writers talking about Mickey you know, on camera. And I'm talking about big folks, people like Walter Mosley, Sarah Paretsky, and Lauren Esteman. I mean, top people. Joe Gores, Don Westlake, I believe, was in it. And I know uh, Lawrence Block was in it. So anyway, it was that was done by, kind of, that was just shrewd indie, indie filmmaking where I thought, okay, if I can go to BoucherCon where all these mystery writers are, it'll be one-stop shopping for me. And I did the same thing when I did the V.T. Hamlin Alley Oop documentary. I went to San Diego Con and got every every cartoonist I could find to talk about VT Hamlin and Alley Oop. Again, I went home with just all, all all I needed of interviews. It was fantastic. That's just a little tip to to would be documentary filmmakers: go to a convention and shoot everybody. Well, what was it like working with Spillane on the the comics then uh, on the uh, the novels? that you would do later on. Mickey and I mostly worked on anthologies together, picking stories out. Initially, they were anthologies of his work. And then later, uh, we did some anthologies that were, you know, the best noir stories of the 20th century, that kind of thing. And 
on the Mike Danger comic book, basically Mickey's role there was that he um, he and I created it together. We figured out what the premise was going to be and what the characters were going to be named and all of that kind of stuff. You know, some of the fun things we did, like have Pat Chambers in the future be essentially be, be a woman, an offspring. Because Mike Danger and Mike Hammer are basically the same character, even though they have slightly different, I mean, it's a different secretary's name, but it's still Velda. Uh, and uh, Danger was created by Mickey first as just a comic book character that he actually could not sell. And that's why he turned it into a novel. So Mike Hammer has, has comic book roots. But we did, that, we did that book for a couple of years, and he'd keep an eye on what I was doing, but I did the writing, basically. You know, he and I never really wrote a story together. We had, there was one time I took a radio play he had written, an unproduced radio play he had written about my camera, and I sort of novelized it or short storyized it to use in, a, in an anthology. And that was really the only thing during his lifetime that, that was that kind of collaboration. But in 2006, when he got very ill, when he had pancreatic cancer, and that's pretty much that's pretty much a death sentence, and he knew it. He was working on what he intended to be his last Mike Cameron novel, and he called me about a week before he passed. He said, "I don't think I'm going to get this finished. If I don't, would you finish it for me?" And I said, "Absolutely, I will be honored." And I, it's the greatest honor anybody ever paid me. Apparently, he went home and told his wife Jane. After I'm gone, there's going to be a treasure hunt around here. Uh, gather everything you find and give it to Max. He'll know what to do. That's basically what we have done. And Mickey had, you know, there are a lot of unfinished manuscripts. There, there are four or five reasons why Mickey wrote so little in certain periods of his life. One of them was that he was a Jehovah's Witness, and it was very difficult for him to navigate that religion and the demands of what people expected from a Mickey Spillane story. He didn't try it very often. He only did a few. And one of the times he got in trouble, I know. That was a factor. Another factor was he was for a long time having an argument with his publisher, his novel publisher, strictly about the size of his advances. And then he also was somebody who had, uh, you know, would get an idea to do something else and set what he was working on aside and then start that, saying, well, I'll get back to this. But then he never would get back to it. And that happened a lot with him. So... I found half a dozen hundred-page starts on my camera novels. And often there were notes about what the endings would be, notes about characters, notes about plot. And when I used to visit him uh, in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina, we got along real, so well, in part because Mickey had a lot of friends. But this one would be a guy who fixed cars. This guy would be a dentist. You know, this would be a lawyer. Uh, you know, this would be some guy who works in a factory. He had all kinds of friends, but no writer friends down there. And when I came, we talked writing, and we talked deep into the night about writing. And he would do things like, uh, this is one of my most indelible memories. He would get on his feet and, and start telling me the ending endings that he had figured out from my camera stories. And it's like sitting around the campfire and hearing some incredible storyteller. I'm sitting on the couch, Mickey Splane's on his feet, entertaining me. And at the same time, I am filing those endings away because I already knew that the, some of, I knew about these manuscripts that weren't finished. I thought someday I may be called upon to finish these. 
so I haven't got the greatest memory in the world, but I, I could, rem- and it was so vivid. So he told me the ending to a book called The Big Bang. He told me what the ending was going to be uh, to to a book called uh, Kiss Her Goodbye. I, I mean, he probably told me four endings that way over the years. And that's another factor, by the way, uh, of he had three offices. He had one office in the downstairs of his home, which was kind of like a, a study, kind of a traditional, you know, floor-to-ceiling bookcases and, you know, that kind of atmosphere. But then he also had this old office up on stilts that had been there since the 1950s that had somehow survived a hurricane when, when, the, rest of, when the house next door had been torn down. And then he had another office on the third floor of this home that he built to replace <laughs> to replace the home that had been blown down by the hurricane, which he built like a you know pine bunker. So Mickey would would have a well, he'd have a book going in every office. I ended up I still have a file cabinet full of unfinished material. So I've already done ten my camera novels, and I've got two more. Yeah, two more to come. And a book of short stories, all taking shorter fragments and turning them into into short stories. And then there also was a book called Dead Street, which was a non-my camera, and then a book called The Consumata, which was a sequel to a book he did called The Delta Factor. So I've already done that. This not now we're in the math area, but I've done something like thirteen novels in since two thousand six. And we'll have, at the end of this current contract, we'll have doubled the number of my camera novels. And that's one of the things that is really significant about this effort to finish these books. He only did 13 my camera novels. Now, there are 75 Perot novels. There's 100 Perry Mason novels. There's about 75 uh, Nero Wolf novels. I mean, this, this was very unusual that a character that famous by writer who was relatively prolific, only appeared in 13 books. So one of my goals was it would be really nice to double that number, do it with legitimately Spillane-oriented stories where, where a good amount of the material in the book was generated by Mickey. The first six I did were all 100-page manuscripts, at least, that I turned into, say, 300-page manuscripts. So there's plenty of Mickey in these books. One of the things that really pleases me is when when somebody will do a review of the book and and pull two quotes to give examples of two great Spillane lines, and I will have written one of them, and Mickey will have written one of them. And that's very, very cool. That's very cool. You said that you have written defenses of Spillane in the past, and I think one of those kind of – it kind of comes through definitely in your nonfiction book, uh, Mickey Spillane on Screen. What – Spillane adaptation, TV, radio, film, what do you think has the most Mickey in it? What is the most Mickey Spillane movie in your or adaptation in your eyes? It's bizarre because I believe that to be Kiss Me Deadly, a movie that in some respects isn't like him at all because the Mike Hammer of Kiss Me Deadly is not the Mike Hammer of the books, not purely anyway, because... Uh, the guy, the guy in Kiss Me Deadly is, as as one of the FBI agents says, is a stinker. He's a divorce PI, I, all of this stuff. But at the same time, that movie captures the mood 
the feel of those books, what those books feel like, the pace, the noir atmosphere. Now, I think that the first Eye of the Jury is pretty good at too. the one that was done in 3D, which sometimes gets a bad rap. And I think Mickey did a good job in The Girl Hunters. Although by that time, you're up into the early 60s, and I think those 50s movies are, just because they're in the era that the books were published, they have a certain value. And I think the Darren McGavin series is very good. I'm delighted that it's out on uh, on DVD. That was the first my first exposure to Mike Hammer. So uh, I think he's had some, some decent films made. And Kiss Me Deadly is a masterpiece. I mean, it's one of the one of the maybe half dozen great noir movies. Is that the one that you go back to if you go back to a spoiling adaptation? I would say yes. I have not seen any movie more times than Kiss Me Deadly, but I have seen The Girl Hunters a lot, and I've seen I the, the first Eye of the Jury a lot. And I also like the Armand Asante Eye of the Jury. I mean, if you've read that book, you know I like almost all the movies. I, I really am. I mean, I'm so tickled that there's a My Camera movie that you got me at go. The only really, really terrible one was the one that had Rob Estes in it, where uh, Velda was, that was a TV movie, and Pamela Anderson played Velda, and it's a terrible movie, but I've seen it two or three times nonetheless, because we, Jim Trailer and I wrote about it in, 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 our, in our book, and I should say that Jim Trailer and I are, are working on a Spillane biography, too. Jim has been working really, really hard, and, and working with Jane Spillane's blessing with total access and everything we, we needed. Well, you don't seem like the kind of guy to just kind of sit around and not do a whole lot. No, I, I'm I'm uh you know I, I'm happy when I'm working. I'm uh, you know I had some health problems in recent years. I'm doing really great now, but whenever my wife tells me to slow down, I have to tell her no. I'm I like I I'm I'm myself when I'm working. I'm myself when I'm working fast. Being able to come back, for example, to be able to come back to the quarry character, who. That was the first thing I did that I really felt proud of, that I, like I'd really done something of my own, and it only ran four books in the mid-'70s. And I never thought, I thought it was dead, thought it was done, and then the, the thing had, turned out to have a cult following, and then I got to do another one in the 80s, and then suddenly there was a short film that I wrote, and then there was a movie, and then there was uh, Hard Case Crime, putting more books out and I've now written many more than I had the first in the first incarnation. And there was a Cinemax TV show. So there's no way to know in a career like this, what's coming next, but you got to work hard and you got to work all the time. You can't sit around waiting to get discovered in, uh, you know, in Schwab's because you're in a tight sweater. You have to be aggressive. And that's one of the reasons why, if you look at, at my career, and I'm sure that I'd have a bigger reputation if I had done less work, that tends to be the case. But, you know, if they, they come to me and want a nonfiction project, I'm up for it. If they want me to do trading cards, if it's interesting, I'm up for it. Uh, there, there's very few areas of narrative storytelling I haven't gotten into. Is the best place for people to catch up with you at maxallencollins.com, or do you post more to Facebook or Twitter, or do you just not even bother with that stuff? I do a weekly I call it an update. It's basically a blog that appears every Tuesday morning. You know, I, I write it weekly. I've not, I've been doing it for, for years and have never missed. And it's a combination of news, what's coming up, what's coming out. Sometimes I do book giveaways to people to do reviews. Uh, I do movie reviews. I do 
just sort of biographical stuff. When I was having the health problems, I had heart surgery, and I I wrote about that whole experience. And uh, you know, so it's everything is there. Uh, there's not really not much being hidden from the from the public about me. Not that anybody gives a shit. And that was my son Nathan encouraged me to do that. And it's it's turned into something kind of interesting. And there's pictures. And so once a week, every Tuesday morning at 9.30 Central Time, we, we put it up. Also, it has links to reviews and to articles. And like this week, there's a link to a thing in Publishers Weekly uh, where they did a little interview with me that was a lot shorter than this one. And then I post those on Facebook. I would like to mention one other thing that we didn't talk about, and that is the the books I do with my wife, Barb. We do a a cozy mystery series. It is definitely not hard-boiled or noir, but it's very, very funny. It always has the word antiques in the title. And the byline is Barbara Allen. I'm Allen, and she's Barbara. And uh, we've done a dozen of those, and they're very very successful, one of the most successful things I've ever uh, been involved with. And don't think my wife doesn't remind me of that now, now and then. But uh, they're, they're a lot of fun. The current book, one that's coming out soon, is called Antiques Wanted. And the, uh, the, last, the previous one is Antiques Frame. So they're, they're fun. They're fun. If you like my sense of humor, uh, you know, I guarantee these. I give you a complete guarantee except for the money back part. Max, thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Thank you so much for, uh, thank you so much for this. Greyhounds rocking out tonight to maximum rockabilly. When two punks choose to risk the subway for a tube to Piccadilly, whose efforts stir fast gangs for glory, another dumb casualty. Having fun. It's hour six. A hit a flick, knife flicks. Oh, kiss me. Deadly. Tonight. All right, we are back and we we're talking about Kiss Me Deadly. And I brought this up a little bit earlier as far as I use the term gentleman detective. I, we go back to Hercule Poirot and Sherlock Holmes and these guys who. You know, would come in, look at the crime scene, uh, give you their interpretation within a few moments, and you know, spend the rest of the time trying to get all the dominoes to fall into place. Mike Hammer didn't necessarily move the dominoes around. He would come in and just tip the table up and just be like, who am I going to beat up first? You know, <laughs> and I'm trying to think of, you know, in, uh, I mentioned Parker earlier. I'm trying to think of other detectives who were kind of cut from that same cloth or molded from that same clay to kind of use uh, Westlake or, or Stark's terms. He always talked about Parker and his big hands that would love to hammer on people. So I'm curious from you guys, who are some of the, 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 the other detectives or detective type figures that would fall in with a Mike Hammer? One of the things that fascinated me about Hammer was he was essentially the character that Philip Marlowe had to assume during moments of extraordinary duress, that, that Marlowe was able to shift in and out of these, of these different personae 
depending on on who he was with. And, the, and there are entire sections of some of those Raymond Chandler novels where it appears as though Marlowe has gone over the edge and has, done, has committed a, a murder or something like that, you know. Uh, uh, and then, of course, it turns out at the end that 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 he realized it was only by assuming this 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 role as he as he moved to this world, uh, you know. And so, you know, Mike Mike was always to me that 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 guy that Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe were from somewhere between twelve to forty pages of every of every novel. But then it's just it's just that for 225 pages. This is a really interesting question. I was trying to think about this, uh, Mike, and uh, who are characters that are, you know, other hard-boiled characters in Hammer's Mold, and it didn't really, it was, it was much harder than I thought it would be. I mean, obviously, you know, post-World War Two, certainly, you know, crime fiction is changing, that sort of what we call that golden age of crime uh, which was particularly British-based, but not 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 entirely. Where it's all very, um, you know, which which is between World War One and World War Two, where there's lots of locked room mysteries and manor houses, and sort of, you know, as you say, the the gentleman, not always a man, but um, you know, uh, the gentleman detective who uh, is solving crimes through the use of his intellect and his ability to sort of read people. And then wraps it all up at the begin at the end, and, and and catches the person who gets away with it. Obviously, post World War Two, huge change in the genre, certainly in America. That golden age material um, is not going to cut it anymore. So you've got the whole rise of the sort of hard boiled detective, and what what you could sort of call the noir detective. And that what's the key thing about the noir detective is that. He, and for a long time it was a he, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, he pushes the case, he pushes whatever investigation that they're in, he's involved in beyond the point that's necessary and also advisable to his health and the health of those around him and brushes up against, and in the process brushes up and takes on the powers that be, um, which, which certainly Hammer's books have that noir detective in the sense that, Hammer um, pushes pushes things far more advanced, you know, far more than he should. There's a great passage from um, Kiss Me Deadly early on in Kiss Me Deadly, where Hammer's out of hospital and Vera is talking to him. His PA Vera is talking to him, and Vera wants him to sort of not push the case. And Hammer basically says, "You know, Vera's saying what, what's going on? Why are you doing this?" And Hammer just says, "Beats me." But they tried to kill two people to find out whether I like it or not. I'm getting in this thing as deep as that dame was. I grinned at Velda sitting there, and I like it too. I hate the guts of those people. I hate them so bad it's coming out of my skin. I'm going to find out who they are and why, and then they've had it, which is a terrific description of the noir detective, just pushing it, and and certainly in Kiss Me Deadly, Hammer just gets more desperate, more beat up, you get radiation burns, he's still going to push this case. I was trying to think of similar characters. Weirdly, even though it's a slightly different literary genre, I was thinking the original Ian Fleming Bond novels. Oh, that's good, yes. Capture this this very much. They they capture this very gritty, nasty nasty masculinity. They also capture this, and and that's the great joy of the Fleming Bond novels for me when I read them. The great joy of them was finding out just how gritty, hard-boiled and nasty Bond is. Yes. 
Um, he's a, basically a blunt weapon that is just used to sort of smash communism, which which is captured sort of more in the sort of early Connery films, and then we lose that. But anyway, without getting into that, I think some of the Bond novels capture that essence of that pushing the case far beyond what is advisable to push it, and regardless of the harm to other people and the harm to uh, your yourself. Parker is not a bad analogy, certainly, I think, for just how almost what a bit of an autom- automaton, um, a robot sort of, you know, Hammer and Parker are. They just have this 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 view to sort of that they're going to push on and they're going to solve the case or in Parker's, Parker's case, Parker being the, the famous fictional thief character by Richard Stark, a.k.a. Uh, Don Westlake, you know, usually to get the money that he's been cheated on in a job or to, um, you know, to, to avenge himself on someone in the heist gang that's basically pulled a fast one and betrayed the heist gang. That's another analogy. In terms of film, the film that I came to that features a fictional PI that is actually not very much like Hammer in Kiss Me Deadly, but I think the film is very similar to... Um, the style and tone and sensibility of Kiss Me Deadly was Arthur Penn's 1975 film Night Moves, yeah. which is sort of thinking, which is, which is again, a PI who's quite a bit of a, you know, so you've got Harry Mosby, that's Gene Hackman. I mean, it's, it's my, one of my favourite 70s um, crime films, and I know, Mike, that you're never um, adverse to, um, you know, to giving a good rap to a good 70s film, so just bear with me for a moment. Uh, as You know, as this PI who... Is a sort of pretty pretty poor specimen in some respects of masculinity. His wife's cheating on him. His his business is in the toilet, um, and he takes this. He's given this case by this friend, and without going into all the pros and cons of the case, which I've watched that I've watched Night Moon about half a dozen times, I still can't quite figure it out. But it's it has that same surreal sense that Kiss Me Deadly has. Nothing quite fits together. You're not quite sure what's going on. Mosby spends virtually the entire film chasing little loose ends and sort of um, uh, non-sequiturs that never quite pan out, um, and, but he keeps pushing forward regardless of the harm to himself, regardless of the fact that he's, that the case is starting to involve friends of his and he's he's, he's sort of conflicted about that. Do I, how do I take that? Um it's starting to become more dangerous. People around him are dying, and he just pushes it forward. And it's like, you know, he's just ch- he's chasing this water that's going down a sinkhole into 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 nothingness. And like Kiss Me Deadly, we're really not, the, the film ends on this very jarring note, and you're really not sure what's been going on the entire time. There's a sort of larger conspiracy in this case. It's involving, I think, the the theft of Latin American antiquities. By people who are close to um, to uh, to Harry Mosby. So there you are. We've given away the plot lines to two films in this car in this podcast. But that's that's the film that I kept coming back to as a sort of one that is similar to this one. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking of and now both of these guys have more personal reasons for things like Mike Hammer. Uh, he doesn't know Christine from Adam, but yet he's offended and he needs to go after this. Parker. He just wants his money, so he's going to do whatever it takes to get that. But the guys who have uh, some skin in the game, that would be the one guy's, uh, I believe it's his daughter, and then the other guy's brother. I'm thinking of uh, the Limey and Get Carter. I think both of those guys have that same type of 
single-minded purpose and will do whatever it takes, including a lot of fisticuffs to, uh, to make things right. This might seem a bit out of left field, but I always saw an affinity or a set of shared motifs between uh, this film and the 1968 uh, Gordon Douglas movie, The Detective, starring uh, Frank Sinatra. I mean, that Sinatra is a, it's a police detective, but we pretty much strip away um, uh, a lot of the psychological and institutional uh, motifs that surround, you know, a, a police officer, and we kind of make him more existentially like a private investigator. That 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 he's a, uh, you know, he's a person whose whose life is is completely coming unglued, and and he has he has no real core. There's no core to his life other than this tenacious pursuit of this of this suicide and this murder that that the more he finds out the more he finds out that that, uh, the more he finds out about what's going on the more he finds out that that the uh the corruption and the conspiracy in which all of these events are involved are 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 as as far reaching and as and as paranoid as anything that we see in kiss me deadly and so maybe we could think about the influence of Mike Hammer, uh, 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 all, certainly in in the in the roles of other PIs in in fiction and film that that followed. But but perhaps if we saw Hammer as a as a crucial figure in the cross pollinization between the figure of the PI and the figure of the cop. Then we might see this whole new uh, hybrid form of of character of the deputized officer of the law uh, who shares many of the um, existential and extra legal uh, motivations and and, uh, and 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 approaches to their work that we would have previously only seen in. Uh, in sort of detective fiction in which our main character was a PI, but that, that increased 1970s uh, cycle of films where we have these nihilistic existential police officers that, that uh, uh, one of my, one of my, uh, one of my uh, favorites that I can't think of the name of now. And it has all those cool gay clubs from the sixties and then Walter Matthau, the, the laughing policeman. Yeah. 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 And, and, and Bruce Dern. Yeah. 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 The, and, and uh, uh, you know, and of course, you know, Dirty Harry would be would be in that would be in that mold. So, you know, maybe maybe Mike, uh, 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 maybe Mike and Pat Murphy got married, settled down and had a bunch of kids who were nihilistic, existential, psychotic officers of the law. <laughs> maybe maybe that's how we could uh, we could think and, of this. And of course, the detective has has the detective with um, the Sinatra film has Ralph Mecker in it. There's a nice segue. One of the things I think that you're also talking about, which Kiss Me Deadly is a early example of, um, but it, it became a much more pronounced films a, a theme of crime fiction in the '70s, and I think crime film is the whole deregulation of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the systems are breaking down, so people take it on their own to go and do these things um, almost almost separate to any state or institutional structures that they're sort of affiliated to. 
Right. And 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 unlinked linked to that, which Kiss Me Deadly is a really good and really really powerful early example of. And I think linked to that, I mean, film noir is full of characters who go up against the powers that be. I think, or certainly go up against powers like usually organised crime or things like that. But what happens in the seventies is, as a result of I think you know Vietnam and Watergate and various things like that, is certainly what happens in American cinema, is that. The real powers that be, the, the state, the police, the army, the government, are basically, more, more often than not, they're going to be actually the real, the criminals that you're after. Yes. Uh, more than more than some sort of, uh, you know, hood-like sugar small house, uh, you know, who, who, like that. And I think that's, a, that's a, very, a very pronounced thing that sort of mixes into that whole deregulation of, 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 of criminal investigation and the private investigator that's happening in the 70s, which is why it's really interesting, I think, to sort of draw those parallels between Kiss Me Deadly and and some of those 70s films like The Laughing Policeman, um, like the Dirty Harry films. And, again, I come back to Arthur Penn's Night Moves. That's a sort of Chabral-like – I mean, you, you, we, could, we could trace these strange sort of lines of influence, right, that that we have the, the, the French detective uh, films being – uh, uh, of course, there's the, the great native uh, tradition of, of French detective fiction, and then the then the uh, you know then the Goodis and Hammett novels that were sort of uh, hugely influential on on you know both uh, highbrow and lowbrow French writers, and then the you know post-war crime films that were then sort of fed into the new wave. And by the time we get to a movie like Night Moves, it's it's a detective, it's an American detective film shot like a Claude Chabrol film. Mm. So, so so all of these lines of influence are sort of looping back on each other, and we can see this this remarkable, I mean, boy, that would be a great book, uh, uh, the, the coextensive co-creation, uh, mutual influence of, of American and French detective fiction and film from like 1955 to 1975. Would that be a cool thing to do what's crazy to me is that aldrich wasn't this film noir expert that he hadn't been out there churning these things out this wasn't his 10th film noir i think this was maybe his first film noir i'm I'm not familiar with too many of his earlier films but i know i remember big leaguer where it was a baseball movie you know and i know his older work or his newer stuff westerns and war films yeah this is this is this is unique in his filmography. That's that's true. He didn't do this, but Aldrich. I mean, you know, without without. I mean, you could you could do a whole podcast on Aldrich's career, but um, you know, Aldrich narrowly missed you know being caught up in Huac. He was friends with a lot of. He was getting his start, and he was friends with a lot of those fellow travelers whose careers suddenly got ensnared by the hell that was Huac. He avoided it because I think. I mean, I was reading some material about him partly because he was just too, too junior at that stage to, for anyone to really bother to focus any attention. But I think it's interesting to speculate about how that might have influenced him as a liberal um, and and fed into um, to kiss me deadly. Well, he definitely made a lot of friends with liberals. I mean, we've talked a lot uh, on this podcast before about Burt Lancaster back in the swimmer and other films where we've you know talked about his leftward leanings and he worked with lancaster aldrich and lancaster worked a ton together um 
be it in the westerns or twilight's last gleaming a, a whole lot of stuff and uh it's nice that uh they would work together so much because i mean god i love burt lancaster um and then yeah he would also cast meeker in quite a few films as well uh even to the point of uh him showing up in the dirty dozen and yeah when you look at aldrich's filmography i mean especially once you get to i'd say like what 1962 it's just like bang 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 you're seeing all of these movies where you're just like oh i know that movie oh i know that movie too and then you realize this was one guy who directed all these things from the longest yard emperor of the north ulazana's raid the grissom gang uh the legend of lila claire the dirty dozen the flight of the phoenix hush hush sweet charlotte whatever happened to baby jane that's all one guy and it's just you no, know, and the, and then the the lesbian film that almost like killed the production code, the killing of Sister George. I mean, but that, that's like a, that's like a sort of crazy women's picture. He also directed Autumn Leaves with Joan Crawford. I didn't know that until I looked at IMDb this evening in 1956. Like the only two films noir he did by my you know like by my sight uh, would be Kiss Me Deadly in 1955. And Hustle with Burt Reynolds in 1975. He also was uncredited on The Garment Jungle in 1957. Okay. okay. Which apparently he had, was having some Barney with the studio head, which which resulted in his name being taken off it. I mean, thematically, though, you know, what, what there are things that, you know, those films, I suppose you could say it's a trope of a lot of cinema, though, but thematically men driven on, on personal crusades is a theme right. that sort of crops up a lot in Aldrich's films, which also is a sort of theme of uh, Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah, so that's something that sort of certainly comes in that that, that binds binds um, Kiss Me Deadly to Aldrich's broader sort of output. I think the other thing that Aldrich was very strong about was the fine line, arguably non-existent line, between guilt and innocence, which is sort of... Um, Captured, you know, I mean, that's captured beautifully in Dirty Dozen, you know, with Major Reisman. I'm talking talking to one of the prisoners. I can't remember which one. It might have been Clint Walker where he basically said, look, you're, the, the, it doesn't matter that whether you killed this guy, you know, on purpose or not. The fact is you got seen doing it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, which is, again, another, another theme that's in a lot of Aldrich's work. The Choir Boys is a particularly great example of that, I think. Or the and a particularly yard. gruesome little film. Mm-hmm. Well, but and here's the guy that revolutionized the horror film with whatever happened to Baby Jane. Like, there's nothing in his filmography that suggests that 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 he's going to uncork that whole subgenre that's going to go on for ten or fifteen years. And Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte is is actually I would it's I actually I actually like it better because I think it's even sicker. But uh, no, it, it, the 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 urban crime film was really not not one of his areas of specialization. And yet he made one of the very, very best ones and then continued, you know, with all of those made those, you know, crippling changes in the movie business during that risk. You know, look at these films that he look at here, like 55 to, to 72, 73. That's Hollywood's worst, worst recession. I mean, some of the studios were, were literally on the block. Like they were, they were selling shit, you know, and 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 he was able to flourish during this period, which is really really quite remarkable. And Twilight's Last Gleaming, you know, uh, if, if you want to uh, ever show somebody what home video is 
isn't and should never be. Watch this hand-scanned VHS version of, of Twilight's Last Gleaming because that's a it's that got that great widescreen split-screen thing, you know, where entire sections of the film are done in two and three like you know zones, you know, two or three separate shots in the thing, and then the, and then uh, on on VHS it's sort of you know panning back and forth between. But that was a that was a revolutionary film. I mean, no no one had really seen split screen used like that, you know, in a, in a, a sort of non exploitation film. You know, they've been you know like you know low budget films that had, that had done it and stuff. But I mean, that was a huge star vehicle. He really emerges as as one of the most distinctive and successful filmmakers throughout this this period of of, of recession and transition in Hollywood. But a period that just destroyed so many people of his generation, and he just did great film after great film. Also, um, your point about you know revolution, revolutionized horror film, arguably with whatever happened to Baby Jane. I would argue The Dirty Dozen in 1967 was one of the first of that crop of revisionist war films that happened in the 60s. Yes, you know, I mean, a, a, a huge influence on a whole lot of films. It doesn't get a lot of love, but I. You know, I'd like to give a shout out to Alonzo's Alonzo's Raid, one of the most gritty and revisionist westerns made in the early seventies. I've just been reading um, opening Wednesday at a theatre or driving near you, the shadow cinema of American of the American seventies by Charles Taylor, has a terrific um, essay on on Alonzo's Raid, and you know had its parallels to Vietnam, and in some respects how it helped. Well, the, the Western's always being always being reformulated, but you know it was another he, yet another take on the Western. Yeah, that really is a great film. Um, uh, it was shown on a NBC Saturday Night at the Movies at some point in the mid seventies, with all the gore taken out. It go for about five minutes, did it? No, but but the the gore was all what the cavalry was doing to the First Nation people. Those were the gory scenes. Those were the scenes of protracted, sadistic slaughter, and and so you 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 really you got this version of the film that was sort of you know bowdlerized and and almost uh, completely subverted. But yeah, I, I agree that that's one of the great revisionist westerns. And and you know the longest yard, you know Burt Reynolds would do anything. He was like the John Carradine of the seventies. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like like just. To put the put the money in escrow, and I will show up on your set, and there is no depths to which I will not sink. And and the Longest Yard is really a remarkable film that holds up uh, quite well as as another one of those revisionist films that takes a look at at all male social institutions and and sees the the rot. You know, coming. You know, in this case, the you know the the penal system and and football, and just sort of sees the the rot inside of them. So it, you know, he never really lost his touch. I you know, I I I don't think he was he was always making uh, uh, fascinating and challenging films all the way up to the end of his career. Has anyone ever made another film about um, hobos jumping trains during the depression? Emperor of the North, nineteen seventy-three. I mean, single-handedly created its own, single-handedly created a cinema genre almost. Well, yeah, because I can certainly think of a lot of the ones that came out after that. There was that David Carradine uh, biography of of uh, Woody Guthrie. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be it. Yeah, and very influential, as we say. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and take a, another break and play a preview for next week's show. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. 
story of the Maltese falcon. Six hundred years, the falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird, but every story has the same ending, murder. Listen to these incredible people, all consumed by their passionate greed for the Maltese falcon. What have you ever given me beside money? Have you ever given me any of your confidence, any of the truth? Haven't you tried to buy my loyalty with money and nothing else? What else is there I can buy you with? I won't play the sap for you. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. We were talking about a lot more money than this. There are more of us to be taken care of now. Well, that may be, but I've got the falcon. You may have the falcon, but we certainly I've taken a lot of riding from you, I'm gonna take. Get up and shoot it out. Stop it, the police will be here any minute. Now talk. Oh, how can you accuse me of such a terrible... This isn't the time for that schoolgirl act. We're both of us sitting under the gallows. That's right, we're going from Spillane to Hammett with a look at the Maltese Falcon. Until then, I want to thank this week's guests, Kevin and Andrew. Andrew, what is the latest with you, sir? Plugging away on various projects. Just had a book come out late last year, which has taken up five years of my life. I co-edited it. It's called, um, which I'll give it a plug, it's called Girl Gangs, Biker Boys and Real Cool Cats, Pulp Fiction and Youth Culture, 1950 to 1980. And it's basically a look at how Pulp Fiction has um, responded to, riffed off and sensationalised youth subculture in Australia, America and Great Britain since the war. When is your Rollerball book coming out? The film is set in 2018. So I've been saying to the publisher it needs to come out in 2018. And yes, it's, it's, it's going to be this year. We're, we're playing around with covers at the moment and editing and things like that, but that's in the works too. I'm also working to get to a publisher. So the pulp book have be, has become another two pulp books now, and one the next one is called um, Sticking It to the Man, Revolution and Counterculture in Pulp and Popular Fiction, 1950 to 1970. So I'm just working on trying to get that to the publisher within the next few weeks. And, Kevin, how about you? How are all those dumb white guys? 
Well, I'm still working on a, a book uh, tentatively titled From Beavis and Butthead to Tea Party Nation, Dumb White Guy Culture and Politics in America. But uh, the last chapter just get it, gets stranger and stranger. Uh, every time I um, uh, turn on my computer and look at the Yahoo News. So I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do about that. You could just keep writing that book forever, really, couldn't you? <laughs> God, I hope not. If Sisyphus was an author. It seems that uh, dumb white guys will not go gently into that good night. They're going to fight those. They're going to fight the last war as, as, as long as there's a, a, a synapses firing, admittedly, on the much lower levels. Are you still blogging a lot? No, the blogs have gone on hiatus because of some uh, uh, some some new stuff I've been doing in my teaching at Southern Methodist University in uh, the Meadow School of the Arts. But I'll be I'll be the blog is the blogs are coming back in a big way in the uh, in the winter and spring. So watch for those. What is the what is the site called, Kevin? Uh, my uh, I, have, I have two blogs. One is called Not and Gender. Uh, allusion to Othello, K-N-O-T, not in gender, which is about gender and sexuality in the media. And my other blog is called The Crawling Eye, which is about cult film, media, music, uh, and and other stuff. And wow. there's a blog spot. And there's some pretty cool stuff on that. And I'm, I'll be updating both of those uh, within the next week or so. And then I'll be trying to uh, add to them a little bit, a little bit more. But uh you know, Mike always keeps me keeps me honest. I have to keep busy, uh, if for no other reason than to answer this question at the end of my uh, guest uh, spots on the projection booth. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.